were you doing when that, that fertile idea was born in your nimble brain? What do you mean was I wrote it? Well, I know, but I mean, you must have sat down and thought, I don't have an idea for a movie yet, and then there was another moment where you did have a moment for a movie, an idea I was doing, I was, blah, 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 blah. I was doing a show, mm -hmm. and uh, the producer of the show, Broadway show, said, uh, look, uh, they, they, they want a release, so what are, you, what are we doing next? What are we doing next? Uh, what, what, give me a title. Mm -hmm. I said, we're doing a musical called Springtime for Hitler. Tell him that. He said, I, I, can't, I can't tell him that. I said, you tell him that. We're doing Springtime for Hitler. Mm -hmm. So... Ed Padula was the producer. He was a little worried. He said, okay. Yeah. He said, we're doing Springtime for Hitler next. And they said, who's in it? They said, well, we're not sure. You know, we just... <laughs> we right past them, eh? We just gave them the title, you know. Yeah. And then about a year later, I said, what a wonderful title. Yeah. Springtime for Hitler. Now, if I can uh, get some idea underneath that, you know, a story or something, mm -hmm. I would be very happy. So I thought, I said... Well, let me see, Springtime for Hitler, if it is a show, it's probably the worst show ever, in the worst possible taste. And I worked back from that. Yeah. And I thought of uh, a Broadway producer, and then I, I thought of a, you know, the Gene Wilder character, Leo Bloom, and, and from there on it was uh, fun and easy. Yeah. Yeah. Is any of your own life in the movie? Oh, all of it. All of it. <laughs> all of it. All of it. it is really autobiographical. Yeah, I see. Because I was with them. I was, we crushed France, 27 days, you know, France. Poland a half hour, <laughs> no more Poland. You know, you're very convincing. Whatever we that. want, we take. We're now in Argentina, all of us. Are you? <laughs> Is it true that you all receive the stolen paintings they take from museums, that they go into your collections and... I will not speak unless Herr von Ribbentrop is on my right to protect me from the vileness of your young goy. Wait. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to... I'm surrounded by assholes. Starring Andrew, Tyler, and Zach. Today's episode, Where Did He Go Right? James Mason. James oh, do you mean the most bored villain in cinema history? Yes. <laughs> My name's James Mason. Oh, I'll be playing what? the role of God. What? What is this? Is this a? Is this a vampire movie, Tony? Is this a vampire? Oh yes. Oh yes. I don't. Whatever. I'm not in that scene. Well. Uh, wait. You see, you... Ma you see Martin Landau. There's this microfilm. We've <laughs> not mentioned it for the past 19 minutes of the movie. But this is the whole impetus of the of the film. It's, it's very important. It's what it's what he calls a MacGuffin. I, I don't <laughs> understand what that means. It sounds like a McMuffin, which I really enjoyed in my later years. Oh yes. <laughs> let, let us do go on about the McMuffin. Yes, ladies, yes. ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Mel Brooks podcast. I'm surrounded by assholes, which we're beginning. On track with James Mason <laughs> impressions. James Mason impressions. For North Northwest. Because... My name is James Mason, and I'm here to talk about Mel Brooks, one of my Mel Brooks. favorite. <laughs> I, my thing with Mel Brooks is I'm James Mason. <laughs> and he never hired me in any of his films because he never I was too large for him. He's my name was bigger than him at the time. And Apparently, I, I can never land 
punchline. He said I was too boring to be uh, to be Harvey Corman's character. <laughs> I, I, kept, I kept pausing in all the wrong places. <laughs> I came and auditioned, and I was like, "Springtime for Hitler." And he said, "Get out of this office." <laughs> yes, it was terrible. It's terrible. So, I'm I'm hysterical. It's not <laughs> it's not heady. It's headly headly. <laughs> So welcome to the I'm Surrounded by Assholes. I'm James Mason, and I'm going to turn over to our head host, Zach, because quite frankly, he is much better at this than I, James Mason. Thank you, you bored prick. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Thank you. Thank you so much, you Boring, boring, boring <laughs> villain. Did I did I just totally dismantle um you know your plan for opening no, the second No, 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 no. I will still do a formal intro. Screw it. We're breaking the fourth wall here. Good evening, I, I was, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I was going for like a blazing saddles kind of thing. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. We moved over from 2022 to 2042. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode two of Surrounded by Assholes, the life and works of Mel Brooks. Now that we're all here, we'll open the meeting with a harumph. Harumph! harumph. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Give the governor harumph. Harumph! You watch your ass. The same guy from last time. He's just not getting it. He's just not getting it at all. Well, uh, now that we're here. What happens when you invite me to these meetings? <laughs> I say, I didn't approve of you. Making Cleavon Little the sheriff of any town. <laughs> <laughs> I like him, I'm just totally on the wrong fucking house. <laughs> I say, Mr. Sarkin Bloom, you may not want to go with that, through with that scheme. You're going to prison, that is most certain, because this play looks too damn hilarious for its own good. <laughs> <laughs> the only qualm I have with Bialystokin Bloom is they did not cast me. <laughs> Yes. I say, I say, uh, uh, I, I say, we'll, we'll play the Contessa and the Chauffeur. <laughs> How dare you condemn me from, without knowing all the facts? I'm wearing a cardboard belt. <laughs> Tries to break it. Ugh. <laughs> oh, that was a lot of effort. Mel, let's cut. I need to break. <laughs> um, chauffeur, come and rip this cardboard belt for me. <laughs> Leonard, yes, Martin Landau from North by Northwest. Please come and break this cardboard belt. My hands are just too fucking weak. Hey, Zach, Zach, one one does apologize. Please get on with one's wonderful intro. Uh, Yes, one will say that we are all here now, and uh, we will open the show with an astonishing idea. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. We have figured it out. Here, us three, we figured it out. The perfect way to quick money. Step one. We're going to find the worst play ever written. Step two, we're, I'm going to raise the money by canoodling with a bunch of little old ladies about to enter death's arms. Step three, Tyler is going to go back to work on the books, making a copy for the government and one for us to hide our tracks. Step four, with Andrew's stellar promotional detail, we're going to open on Broadway. And before we can stay step five, we're going to close on Broadway. And then step six, we're going to take that money and fly to Rio de Janeiro. Rio? Rio, Rio by the sea, oh, be stuck in Leo. 
Sounds foolproof, right? But we have a problem. It has been done before. It did not end well economically for one Bialystok and Bloom, the two most infamous theatrical producers in Broadway history. These are the gentlemen who made a flop and turned it into a hit. How did they go right? And how did Mel come about to make the most audacious and offensive Hollywood comedy ever seen at that point? Well, uh, as as mentioned in our James Mason introduction, I am Zach Eastman. <laughs> And uh, with me are uh, James Mason. James Mason. <laughs> the the British gentleman on my left, Zoom wise, is it is I, Andrew Saunders. Yes, and then below me is it is I, Tyler. Maybe yes. Now, gentlemen, this is episode two. Episode one hasn't launched yet because we're we've got uh, we've 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 got a uh, quick turnaround on this episode, one that we may not see every time. But we were too excited to not get back to discussing the wonderful Mel Brooks. Um, I will tell you, though, that the first episode, um, we covered a lot of ground and talked about the different facets of Mel and his humor. And we really set up what this discussion is going to be, especially when it comes to talking about Mel tackling the Nazi menace. Um, cause this is the, this is the cream of the crop example outside of the remake of to be or not to be. Um, but this is like the tops, like this is, this is origin point for a, a long line of anti-Nazi jokes to come out of Mel. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's the darkest film he's ever made. Um, it, it's one that doesn't really grab a heart until the last minute. Um, <laughs> but arguably there's a heart beating very softly through it. Um, and we're going to talk about it today and let's, let's kick it off by ex explaining our origins on this particular film. When was the first time you had watched the producers, Andrew? Uh, I, I think I mentioned this last night. I think I, I think I saw it as a kid or maybe I'm just like, fake memory that I saw it as a kid because I know I had seen like and heard springtime for Hitler. It's inception. You, it, Leonardo DiCaprio planted a false memory in your head so that you would love Mel Brooks. Yeah. And, I mean, and then, classic Leo. Yeah. And then also so that your father would, and so that somebody would break up their father's company to start his own life. Yeah. Whatever the plot of inception was. I don't know. I just know they went into dreams. They went into dreams. <laughs> they went into dreams. Um, and yeah, no, so I, I want to say I knew I was familiar with it, um, but like I said in the last episode, it, I didn't really get into Mel Brooks until I saw the producers on stage mm, and fell in love with it, bought the soundtrack, wore that out, uh, watched that on DVD a bunch. And then I ended up finding the original movie and was blown away party with and i mean this lovingly how crude it was from just filmmaking perspective um because it is very very stagey um but you know some of the lines and jokes that they get away with i uh get away with in in that movie is just incredible yeah i'd also like to note that you are currently displaying the same blu-ray copy that i have and i know mm -hmm. that has a reversible cover yeah and i love that you went with the original poster for the cover because that's the one i show as well i gen i tend to do that with any time i get a shout factory or scream factory blu-ray i do the reversal art and with 
Mel Brooks, like the the promotional campaigns that he had in his time are spectacular. That sketch of Zero and Gene is fantastic. But, oh, it's it's wonderful, but 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 it doesn't have a woman in a bikini with a Hitler mustache. On it. That's <laughs> that's that's the difference. Yeah. Um, and it also has, I believe, it actually has. Yeah, it's the Newsweek. Um, uh, one of they has a couple of reviews. Newsweek saying pure lunacy, uproariously hilarious, and then it has Gene Shalit's very famous review. No one will be seated during the last. 88 minutes they're all they'll all be laughing on the floor um, which by the way gene shallot a, a photo of him popped up recently on the internet uh looking like a wizard <laughs> like or even more of a wizard than he did it's all gray hair now and the gray mustache and it's just flowing in the wind my friend um tyler when was the first time you saw the producers i think it was film in high school for the first time right around the same time that the Re, like remake occurred mm. and so i watched the original one in order to inform myself about the remake one right um, and i fell in love with the original before i fell in love with the remake although i do love both of them um, yeah I, I think it was just um, <clears throat> a group of friends that got together and we were in someone's basement and decided to put it on because we all like film and that was the one that we picked so um yeah, it's a good time. I love Gene Wilder in this film. He's just, he's such a great actor. So and like, he, his ability to do like, his comedy approach is just great. Like, I just love the blanket scene. I love, I mean, I love when he's running around the fountain and getting yeah. uh, served ice cream from Zero. Like, just so, <laughs> <laughs> to me. so yeah, no, I, um, so probably about high school for me for this one. Right on. That that's a similar story ish. Um, I actually got this in the last year of middle school. This was the last film I found in Mel's uh, filmography. I had seen everything else until I saw the producers. So I ended with where it all began, and um, it came at the cusp of the remake being announced. Um, but I didn't fully realize that the remake was going to happen, but I knew that it had been a Broadway play. And when I was in high school, uh, iTunes had shared libraries, um, like where like ne- across like networks, you could share your library with people. And I saw on a shared library that another teacher had the producer's cast album and he was next door to the video lab where I found it. And so I went over next door and I said, like, hi, you don't know me, but can I rip a copy of the uh, of the producer's Broadway cast recording? And he was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, what? (laughs) (laughs) Three years later, that man would end up being my writing on film teacher. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it was a nice uh, pre 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 meeting of a person who would be very influential in how I dissect film. Um, cause he showed, he didn't show any Mel there, but he showed, um, do the right thing. Shawshank Redemption, um, the sting, uh, Annie Hall and, um, a little bit of Hollywood shuffle. So he, he exposed me to a lot of different films that I might not have picked up on my own otherwise. Um, and, uh, that cast recording made me an even bigger fan of the original because I would think about all the all the different ways these characters are blossoming under several different circumstances. And when it comes to the original, the more I watch it, the more I'm amazed how fleshed out each character really is. Even ones that get short shrift compared to what the musical would give them like Ula. Um, But 
It's... Now Ula does. <laughs> no, no Ula. Go to work. Go to work. Yeah, he wouldn't do it unless we got married. <laughs> <laughs> what a putz! <laughs> um, and uh, but also um, just watching the origin point for Mel, like it's amazing how raw this film is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 clearly a low budget film. It's clearly a movie without the the fine flourish and detail that he'll get later on, and yet it is so rich in detail with where he where he absolutely needs it, and it's obviously in springtime for Hitler but also in some of the sets that he designed, um, which are blazoned with yellow because Mel says that yellow is a funny color. <laughs> and um, so the design set design has this very huge yellow tint, but there's details in, for establishing this world that become richer when he becomes a little bit more of a learned filmmaker for things like Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, where detail becomes very important but this is kind of the starting point because there's also some rough edges to this film that uh, can can be attributed to an american new wave idea like getting out on the street and filming in new york filming on location in tenement buildings like so it's kind of a mixture of what mel would be known for and things that mel was trying when he started because he's he's a young director he's getting his he's getting his claws into this job and he learns over time what he's comfortable with, which is primarily stage, stage, uh, st- sound studios and stages. Um, cause the majority of his films after this tend to be centered inside, uh, a studio atmosphere or something that's a little bit more controlled. Um, now this is a moment where we have to talk a little bit about the pre-production of the film. And I have the question for Andrew in regards to Mel's memoir, how do you feel he handles discussing the producers? Because he gives a lot of time to it as a concept, both filmically and on Broadway. Yeah. I mean, and we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded, like a fair criticism of Mel Brooks's um, biography is he just wants to jump straight to the punchline and everyone finds me hilarious. And I would say with the producers, other than a couple of highlights of, I mean, he had the famous story of, yeah, I wrote this thing and I got told, well, I'll do it as a, I'll do it as a play. And I said, well, it's not a play. There are too many locations. Well, I'll have it as a novel. You can't have it as a novel. There's too much dialogue. It's a movie. Um, And, you know, the other famous story is Anne Bancroft telling him to go away and write a song and that becomes springtime for Hitler. And he comes yeah. out like, again, I'm a genius and everyone finds me hilarious, which again, it's Mel. I'm going to just let that slide. Any other biography I wouldn't be this lenient to. Um, so I would say with the pre-production as it pertains to the biography, I think it he deals more with his own mythology rather than the this was how difficult it was mm-hmm. to sell this concept. Yeah. It, it did feel like reading it like, eh, you know, everyone knew me from show of shows and I'm a genius. So they just gave me the money. And you know, that's not a hundred percent the case. Not, not a hundred percent, but not necessarily the, a low percentage, like one may think, but the idea permeated even earlier than than what the memoir covers. Because the memoir very much starts 
in a post get smart world. Yeah. Um, and and for for people who are listening who may not be fully aware, Mel Brooks created Get Smart with Buck Henry, and it provided an income for him at the time because they they wrote the pilot. Their names are on the show. They get a couple hundred bucks a week um, for the show being produced. And he was also working on a show called All American. And in that time, there was a press conference in 1962. um, And a reporter asked, what are you going to do next? And Brooks answered, springtime for Hitler. (laughs) And clearly some kind of uh, joke just to get a laugh for the press, but it was clearly something that was boiling in him. Mm-hmm. And this idea, not just of springtime for Hitler, but the idea of a theatrical producer had been brewing because he worked at the age of 16 for a man named Benjamin Kutcher. Oh, I forgot that story. Yes. Yeah. He Mel, the story of the producers is a true story. <laughs> <laughs> Because because this producer was literally stripping little old ladies to fund yeah. his place. And what's funny is is that he kept the identity of that producer a secret for years because he didn't want the family to um to feel like awkward or outraged. Like granddad was a dirty old pervert. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy, what did grandfather do? Never you mind. <laughs> old ladies, son. Old ladies. <laughs> Old ladies, hard. Frequently. <laughs> 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 all you day, the couch, it was the other way around. <laughs> all day, every day. Now do your homework. <laughs> <laughs> and Kutcher, yes, he would stup little old ladies, and they would write him a check for the title of his current play, which was usually Cash. <laughs> It's a funny name for a play. Um, it's, it's a funny name for a play. Yeah, and Hold now touch <laughs> not in the oh. hall. <laughs> and now and, and so this concept brews out of experience, but he turns it into something uh much more I'm going to say heartfelt when it comes to the two lead characters because it it, it it's steeped in dark material, but it at its core, you you've got you've got Max and Leo, and there's a definite friendship brewing. And or and as one uh, as one person pointed out in the uh, American Masters documentary on Mel, like there's a father son element. Like a young man comes into the arms of an older man and gets corrupted, or somebody come, falls into the arms of another and gets corrupted, um, which is definitely what Max does. Max corrupts Leo unquestionably um, <laughs> but it's also about them finding friendship in the most unlikely place um but the core of springtime for hitler as it was originally titled before it was called the producers brooks's experience in world war ii is very very key yeah to why he would choose to be this audacious he was already a very rambunctious wild maniac as uh, you as you can ask anybody in uh, Mel's circle during the time of your show or shows. He drove the producer Max nuts. Uh, Carl was seemingly the only one apart from Sid Caesar that could rein him in. Um, and um, Sid Caesar could beat the crap out of him. Dude, dude, the stories of Sid Caesar like holding him outside of a fucking window. Jesus yeah. Christ! And like <laughs> uh, he, uh, when I saw him live, he told the story of basically. 
um, Sid Caesar reaching into a cab and pulling the cab driver out of the the, the car window. Like the man, Sid the Caesar man was not was well. Drunk. No, yeah. Sid, Sid Caesar oh. seemed to have issues and issues and aggressive attitude. However, it sounds like anytime you talk about Sid Caesar, it's never to the point where people felt genuinely hurt. <laughs> like yeah. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I've never read. I haven't read it. Maybe I'm just completely ignorant to it, but I've never read a story about Sid Caesar being anything but a very welcoming comedy giant with his own form of a temper um, yeah. and his own form of an ego. But, and it sounds like some of that ego might've rubbed off on Mel. Um, to, like, I, th- I think a lot of Mel's confidence combined with his openness about being in psychoanalysis. I feel a lot of that confidence that he's able to permeate throughout his career much of it had to be touched by Sid Caesar and the working relationship he had with yeah. him. Well, uh, I think he saw that you could act a certain way and get away with it if mm-hmm. you presented it a certain way. Right, which normally was successful. Y- yeah. yeah, which normally is not a positive lesson. Like <laughs> as as experienced in Hollywood. And I and, and it's hard to say if this is even a positive lesson that's learned because, you know, there there are there are books out there that are very much anti Brooks hit jobs. And uh, it sounds like that that style doesn't work for people. Now it's incumbent on us to recognize that Mel's not completely innocent of tantrum behavior. And I think Mel would be the first person to also admit that like he has some problems, but he also will caveat very quickly to something positive about it. Well, he's, I mean, Mel, if even if, when you read some of the stories in the biography and he's very good at glossing over some of the uglier sides, but if you read between the lines, there is some diva behavior there. Um, like it is a, it is a Mel Brooks set. It is not a collaborative set as much as he would be like, Oh, everyone improv. It is still a Mel Brooks set. Yeah, no, it's it, he, he reigns the control in, he has control. He has possessiveness over his material and and there's a actually it's it's funny because it reminds me a little bit of when I was learning about Kevin Smith as a filmmaker. Kevin Smith adheres to the script. Yeah. Rarely will he let another person improv. And it sounds like Mel's around the same juncture. If they improv, it's because something's not working or an actor comes up with something that does hit him as the correct idea. He let Madeline Kahn do this a lot. Yes. Um it's very clear that he let Gene have free reign in several places. I, um, I just want to go on the record and say, you let Madeline Kahn do whatever she likes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, no. If, Ma- <laughs> if, if Madeline Kahn wants to turn you into a human walrus, you let her. I don't know why yes. I was connecting Smith and Madeline Kahn. I was going to say Tusk to Madeline <laughs> Kahn is a bit of a weird one, but okay. Yeah, also she's, also she's long past, so I don't like the idea of this. Ha- unless she's playing the Michael Parks character this time. You know? Hmm. <laughs> Uh, anyway moving on <laughs> I, I no, now i'm imagining madeline khan in a walrus suit going you will fight me walrus and you will die go, go, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but brooks's experience in world war ii as i was mentioning earlier it provides a lot of clarity as to why he would want to tackle that kind of subject mel was not exempt from experiencing anti-semitism when he joined the armed forces, he is very clear about one story about call, being called by a Southern gentleman based on the way he does the voice 
Jew boy. Uh, and, you know, you've got to be, one, you've got to be a real asshole to do something like that. But number two, uh, when you're a young kid growing up in Brooklyn and you've heard whispers of what Hitler is doing and knowing that he's a bad man, and to see anti-Semitism rooted in the place that is supposed to be fighting this war. Now, granted, the goal primarily had been Japan, but Germany came with that package because Germany declared war on us days after Pearl Harbor. So the seeing anti-Semitism in your own ranks in what's supposed to be the land of the free has got to be very, very jarring. Um, and he elaborated further on this in an interview with McLean's in 1978. He said, more than anything, the great Holocaust by the Nazis is probably the great outrage of the 20th century. There is nothing to compare it with. And so what can I do about it? If I get on a soapbox and wax eloquently, it'll be blown away in the wind but if I do springtime for Hitler, it'll never be forgotten. I think you can bring down totalitarian governments faster by using ridicule than you can with incentive. And that's an important thing to talk about as we go along. Because the, the response to the film was not universal praise. And a lot of criticism came to him from the Jewish community from rabbis, from young students who felt that this was inappropriate. But before we get to that, we'll talk about how this even, how does this idea even come to fruition in 1967, 1968? Um, as you alluded to, Andrew, he originally started it off as a novel, but then realized there's too much dialogue. So he turns it into a play. He takes it to, according to one of the stories he takes that he tells, he takes it to a producer or a theatrical, or somebody in Broadway, and, and the guy says, it's just too many sets, too many locations. And he no, goes, well, what is it? i to get back to my little old ladies. He sounds like a yes. lazy producer, <laughs> if you ask me. Bro. Yes, yes. You want me to make more okay, sense? I'm sorry. Uh, I saw no. Hamilton, and they showed me the entire goddamn War of Independence <laughs> with a rotating stage. So what <laughs> the hell is this producer thing? Yeah, come, come on. Just he Actually, you know guy. what? The more I think of it, The Matrix should have been a stage play. <laughs> and a musical. I know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu. Show me. He knows Kung Fu. He knows Kung Fu. He knows Kung Fu. <laughs> You've got the whole oh, yeah. Nebuchadnezzar crew creeping in on him. He knows Kung Fu. He knows Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Matrix never got me. <laughs> Starts out West Side Story. You've got like the Nebuchadnezzar and then like the uh, robots, and they're all like coming towards each other. Yeah, see, we can do this. It's, I it's, must it's get out of here. What I, what I love is and you're still... going to help me, Morpheus. <laughs> but what I love is you could the still Thurag have the sharks and the jets because the sharks will be the organic humans who know they're in the Matrix, oh. and the jets are still Agent Smith. Oh, and then they fall in love. And then they fall in love. <laughs> yeah, and then make out on the stage. It's I a just dirty met one. a boy named Neo. <laughs> <laughs> I like to live in the Matrix. I, mean, I like to live no in, the in the Matrix. No one is free in the Matrix. 
Well, this is this is what Bell should do next before he goes the Matrix the musical. Lana and Lily write it. Lana and Lily write it. He choreographs it. I'm sorry, James Mason here. James Mason. Um, I was dead before the Matrix came out. So um, if we could, if we can get back to the producers, I'd, I'd greatly appreciate. It. Th- that's that's totally fine. Thank you, other James Mason. Yes, James, James Mason here Mason. narrated the story <laughs> of how the producers got made without me. Um, <laughs> uh, now Brooks, uh, they said he, the producer or the person he brought it to referred to it. He's like, I think it's a movie. And so uh, now Mel's career at this point was kind of stagnant, it, but outside of the Get Smart stuff, uh, I found this via Vanity Fair did a whole article about the production of this film in 2016. Um, and uh, following the All-American closing, Jerry Lewis had hired him as a screenwriter for The Ladies' Man and then fired him, <laughs> which bullet dodged Mel, bullet dodged. I like, I, I love yeah, Jerry yeah. Lewis. <laughs> On screen, off screen, I, 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 he sounds like an unconscionable human being well, apart well, from the foundation that he, <laughs> that he, that he know, built with the telethon. <laughs> did Jerry Lewis watch this movie and then go, the day the clown cried, boom, let's make that <laughs> oh, movie. Oh, possibly. <laughs> and, and what, and Jerry's a guy who was always trying to be a director. So this yeah. must have stung when he found that. This guy that he fired had had blossomed as a director. That yeah. that's got to be interesting. I find it interesting. I don't recall him mentioning Jerry in the book. I, I could be wrong. Uh, if it was, it was really fleeting. But the book really goes from like his Bronx stories, which are wonderful. Like that book is worth the price of admission just for that section. Oh yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then it's like basically the Sid Caesar years and then it's just movies. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, I feel like if he had a bad experience, he chooses to omit it because you yeah. could, he doesn't like lie about his circumstance. He was kind of floating around. There's another screenplay that he wrote apparently, um, uh, as his f- first marriage to Florence Baum was coming undone, uh, he wrote a film called Marriage is a Dirty Rotten Fraud, and it went begging, according to the article. Um, and he had been at this time living in a fourth floor walk up on Perry Street in Greenwich Village. Now, around the time that he's trying to form all these ideas, he meets Anne Bancroft, falls in love with her at the time there. Uh, dating when in 1963 he comes across the presence of one Gene Wilder and Gene Wilder at that time was doing Mother Courage on stage which is a Brechtal play um, with Anne Bancroft with Anne Bancroft yeah and uh, uh, Mel would have this to say about Gene I met him backstage and he was complaining that they were laughing at his serious performance he couldn't understand it because you're funny I told him Gene you're funny get used to it go with what works um, and th- at this time he's f- formulating ideas and he has it in the back of his mind. This is a good Leo Bloom for his, for his Max Bialy shock though. He only had one person in mind, zero Mostel. Zero Mostel was an interesting fucking figure to say the least. <laughs> he, um, he, he was state much. <laughs> yeah, no, he was primarily 
a stage actor, but had plenty of film experience. It's funny because like not too long ago, I saw one of his earliest performances, The Enforcer, where he plays the role of Big Babe. Um, and it's a it's a it's a Humphrey Bogart crime film. He's really good in it. Um, but Mustel ran into some trouble in the early 50s as any film career would have been taking off because he was blacklisted. Um, how the story goes with this, which uh, he he was part of he was listed in red channels, um, which was a list of 151 alleged communists in the entertainment industry. There was a role he portrayed or a character that he had formed called Poltax T. Pellegra, who was a blustery, dumb Southern senator. Uh, and it attracted the unwanted attention of conservative Southerners, because, uh, of course, it did. So he was investigated, and he was called to testify in October of 1954, and he did not name names, so he was blacklisted for up to 10 years. He wasn't working for 10 years. But Mostel would rise above that. He originated the role of Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof. He, he, he brought great acclaim upon himself with a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And he seems to be a man who is larger than life. Unfortunately, <laughs> at the time that Mel would have approached him, he had already been in a major bus accident. <laughs> the incident in question had Mostel being run over by a bus and dragged clear across a street. And it shattered his left leg. You gotta look out for those buses. Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, that's nuts to still walk around and do what he's asked to do in the producers. That's a champ right there. Well, because that opening scene is, and certainly for a man of his size, he is not a small man. It's pretty athletic what mm. he's doing. I and... think that I think that comes with theatrical training. Like even if you're that heavy, you mm -hmm. can still have. A dancer's step like yeah. if you're if you're if you're used to movement on that scale he doesn't but he he doesn't basically it's because of the way the film's cut but he barely shows any injury upon himself like yeah. he he makes you feel like this is something he does every day um and zero zero's involvement would come after mel would fall upon meeting Sidney Glazier, the main producer of the producers who would produce the producers. <laughs> and uh, a lot of producers. <laughs> so many producers. Hey, so Mel, could I be a producer on this film? James, get out of this house. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just, yeah, I don't think I will. If, I think what I'm, if you just put my name as an executive producer? <laughs> then we don't have to do anything. Yes, I could just sit here and watch. Oh, yes, that Kenneth Mars is hilarious. <laughs> Alice <laughs> is like, what is their obsession with James Mason? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know. I guess it has to do with him in North by Northwest, where he looks incredibly put upon and bored. Um, <laughs> um, now, uh, Sidney Glacier, at this point, in 1965, he had won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature for the Eleanor Roosevelt story. And, <laughs> and Mel pointed out in the book. That he, uh, when a friend told him that he wanted him to meet Glazier, he said, as like, yeah, but he just made the Eleanor Roosevelt story, so maybe we shouldn't give it to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Friend's like, no, it's a guy, he works for a company called UMC. It's owned by Louis Wolfeson. He's very rich, has racehorses in Florida. They got a lot of money. So Mel agrees to meet with Glazier 
And uh, Michael, the AD Michael Hertzberg had this to say about Sydney. Sydney was just loud and big. He was more like Bialystok, but you look into his past and you discover he'd already won the Oscar for Eleanor Roosevelt's story. He had a huge, huge heart, gigantic. So who took a risk on this crazy man with this crazy thing, springtime for Hitler? If it wasn't for Sydney, there would be no producers. There'd be no Broadway show. There would be nothing. Um, Mel, now the meeting has two different sources. Mel says he went to Glazier's office. The article says he went to a coffee shop in Manhattan. Regardless of where it came, where the meeting took place, the meeting sits down with Glazier across from Mel, and Glazier goes, I'm a huge fan. I love your show of shows. I like Get Smart. Do me a favor. I don't want to, I don't like to read unless I have to read. So just tell me the story. So Mel starts to tell the story of the producers and act it out for him and recreates the blue blanket scene in front of him. Mel Brooks said, he's sitting there eating his tuna sandwich and drinking black coffee, and I'm reading to him, and the tuna fish is flying out of his mouth, and the coffee cup gets knocked off the table, and he's on the floor, and he's yelling, we're going to make it. I don't know how, but we're going to make this movie. (laughs) And they shop it around, and one of the places they shop it to is Universal Pictures. Um, It's uh, With a 30-page treatment in tow, they take it to Universal, and according to the article... Because he doesn't say this in the book, but in the article, they pitched it directly to Lou Wasserman. Oh, wow. Which, for those who don't know, he's the man who really turned Universal around uh, with M- when MCA bought it out. And also was responsible for acquiring a lot of Paramount's titles and essentially protecting them uh, from decay. Because I don't know how Paramount would have treated their library. Um, and Wasserman was also Hitchcock's agent at one point. Um, early on. So I knew that. I knew that too. Lou came on the set every day and he said, you know, James, you would be perfect for this movie about a young man running a motel. You could play the detective. And I said, I'd rather play the mother. And he went, well, there's a problem with that. And I said, what do you mean? There's a problem with that. I'm James Mason. I can play anything. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I do. I, I'd let like me, to apologize for uh, to me, our listeners, the James let, Mason All family. the James Mason's fans out there. <laughs> let, let, me try, let me try it really quickly. No, I tell you no. I will not go in the fruit cellar, Norman. <laughs> Put me down. Put me down. <laughs> so, Lou Wasserman has pitched the producers and he says, I've got I, I want to do it, but we've got a problem. Springtime for Hitler is just a little too rough. Can't you change it to springtime for Mussolini? Too <laughs> <laughs> many syllables. Come on. Uh, I and mean, so, to this day, I wonder what the lyrics would have been. <laughs> springtime. I mean, you, you would, you'd have to do it more as a rap. Like, it would be Hamilton before Hamilton. And I'm not even going to try and do that version. Making the trains run on time, but don't worry, we'll ignore his crimes. (laughs) (laughs) Break it down now. (laughs) It'd be springtime for Mussolini. Mussolini. 
you'd you'd have to do it as a folk song so you could try and fit in way too many syllables into a line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Taylor Swift could help out with that. Resurrect right? Jack o- Pres- Resurrect Jack Oakey to play LSD yeah. as Mussolini. <laughs> I, I just want everyone to know I stole that joke from Tom Malera, so uh <laughs> <laughs> Credit where credit is most do. of my jokes from Tom Lehrer, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know who Tom Lehrer is, he is the greatest uh, satirist of the 20th century, in my opinion. I uh, I steal all of uh, I I steal I, I stole the initial idea of uh, having fun with films while still respecting them from We Hate Movies. So I, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, you know, there if it, if it were if it weren't for that show, I would uh, like I wouldn't have tried the comedic end of Yesteryear Valley Reviews. So yeah. Um, but at any rate, the he they pass on Universal and they finally get it into the hands of Joseph E. Levine, the head of Embassy Pictures. <laughs> In Mel's words, this is a man who made movies like Hercules Chained, Hercules Unchained, Hercules Chained Again. <laughs> uh, this these are the, more chained. These are the enormously successful Hercules pictures that were made with Steve Reeves, which many of them were parodied on MST3K. Um, Levine was also very, very astute um, at marketing. He saw Vittorio De Sica's Two Women with Sophia Loren, bought it for New York North American distribution after three minutes of watching, and aggressively and adeptively advertising it to secure Loren an Oscar for Best Actress. This is a man who knows what he's doing. He's a man who would also go on to produce and release films like Eight and a Half, The Lion in Winter, A Bridge Too Far, and The Graduate, which comes into play here in just a second. Um, So they take it to Levine, and Levine, according to Mel's biography, uh, autobiography, he goes, his, um, he said, his first question was, who's going to direct? My quick response is, I'll direct. He, re- he logically responded, have you directed before? I told him I directed in the Catskills, and I also directed the floor comedy of your show of shows, basically a segment producer. I also had directed a play in Red Bank, New Jersey, um, which is when Kevin Smith goes, Red Bank, holla! And, um, <laughs> uh, but I hadn't yet directed a film. Uh, so what makes you think you can direct a film, he asked. Because I'm a writer. I created it, I confidently responded. All those scenes I wrote, they're in my head already. I can see them. It'll save us a fortune. I don't have to search for the setups and the lighting because I know what it should look like in advance. If you get another director, he won't have all those scenes in his head already. He will have to make them up, he said. And nobody ever said – and he stopped and he said, nobody's ever said that. That's very smart. Okay, if you don't ask for too much, you can be the director. Now, there was another caveat, though, in that Levine had tested the title Springtime for Hitler uh, with other exhibitors, and they said they would absolutely not ever put the word Hitler on their marquee. <laughs> Fair play to them. That That's I, a tough sell. <laughs> I would like to point out the big flaw in Mel Brooks's logic of I'm a writer, I should be able to direct this. Um, Steven Spielberg, not Steven Spielberg, Stephen King directed Maximum Overdrive. And uh, I think that's just proof uh, that's not always the case. You know, it's it's funny that because his reasoning for it is to to protect the material. Yeah. But you're right. There's not always a case of I can direct because this, this and this. Like mm-hmm. it, you're you're inflating. It's it's the equ- director equivalent of when you're asked as an actor, "Can you ride a horse?" You say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's 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 how I feel about it. Now, 
given that the producers is primarily dialogue driven and and bound to the locations it's not requiring the biggest cinematic landscape it's not unreasonable for him to think he could um but Levine insisted that you get some, or I think it was either Levine or Grazier insisted that he gets some kind of experience under his belt for it. So he reached out to Steve Frankfurt of Young and Rubicam, which was a big advertising agency. It was the advertising agency that was very successful with Jack Benny in making Jello a commodable product because of the way they advertised on that show. Because Jack found a way to just make fun of the product. And Young and Rubicam ran with that, and Jello became this huge product as a result. Um, it's also a place where Jack would have a lot of problems, but Young and Rubicam was a huge agency. Um, and he helped get Mel two commercial gigs in New Jersey as a director to learn how to direct. Uh, they were for Frito Lay. Uh, and he said, I learned a little how to deal with a camera, a set, and a crew. I got exactly what I should have gotten out of it $1,400 for the commercial, a huge box of Frito Lay chips and the beginning of a career as a film director. So all it takes to make comedy classic is $1,400 and a bag of Frito Lay chips. That's how you get that's film school. That's, that's, and, uh, that's film school. <laughs> Kevin Smith took that to the extreme in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> he just sits down and goes like, I didn't get a box of Frito-Lay chips. That sucks. Fuck this shit. <laughs> <laughs> And the other I just, night, I tried watching Morats. I had to turn it off. I was like, "Wow, not not Kevin Smith's finest out." Ah, uh, I like Morats. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry. You won't hear any hate out of this one. <laughs> but, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but uh, now, regardless, though, he managed at, with everything in tow. He manages to get Zero on board after Zero's agent had hidden the script from Zero because he found it offensive. <laughs> Through Glazier's working, they got the script to Zero by way of Zero's wife, Kate. And Zero uh, told Mel, you son of a bitch, I'll do it. My wife talked me into it. <laughs> uh, and then he goes to Gene Wilder all those years later when Gene is working on the play Love with Renee Taylor, who would end up being Ava Braun in today's film, uh, and said, I got the money. You're going to be Leo. And Gene cried and shook with happiness. And he goes like, oh, there, there, boy. <laughs> it's going to be OK. <laughs> You're going to be a big movie star. Um, and now comes the part of assembling the rest of the cast. Now they get Christopher Hewitt to play Roger Debris, who would later go on to be Mr. Belvedere. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and Christopher Hewitt, uh, he apparently did not like, he, he, like Gene never really got to know much of him, but he was very saddened when Christopher passed away at the age of, uh, at the, at the age of 80. Um, and, uh, and, Bancroft apparently recommended Andreas Vustinas uh, for the role of Carmen Ghia. Uh And Andreas apparently had a strict makeup regimen for uh, for this film, getting up as early as he could to be ready by 6 a.m. And that look is very distinct in Carmen Ghia. Yes. Like, it's a very distinct look. So I understand if he's making that time. Um, and then comes the role of Franz Liebkind. Uh, now, Franz Liebkind was originally to be played by Dustin Hoffman. A story that still boggles my mind. <laughs> I mean, that would be like casting, I don't know, a 30-year-old to play a recent college graduate who falls in love with his next-door neighbor's wife. <laughs> 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 
Now, Dustin Hoffman was assigned to play Franz Liebkind. He had a good German accent, according to Mel. He was ready to do the role. Now, I don't know the timeline here because you should never trust Wikipedia, but you can start it off as a base point and then go from there at points. It says it was the night before filming, but Mel does not say that because no. it would have taken weeks to do that. So suck it, Wikipedia. Um, but what is known is, is that one night at 2 a.m., Mel gets pebbles thrown at his window. He opens it up. It's Dustin Hoffman going like, you're not going to believe this. Mike Nichols wants me to fly out to L.A. for an audition. And Mel goes, what are you talking about? Mike Nichols is in L.A. doing The Graduate with Anne. And he goes, yeah, they want me for Benjamin Braddock. And Mel goes, go to the audition, but they're not going to hire you. Like, you, you, Braddock needs to be a, a good-looking man. <laughs> Hoffman goes to L.A. Literally the same day he arrives in L.A., he calls up Mel and said, they want me for Benjamin Braddock. Now, Mel could have kept Hoffman, but he let him go on the condition that he wouldn't fool around with Ann. <laughs> See, I would have loved it if he was like, okay, all right, Dustin, I've got one word for you. Plastics. And just left it at that. And if you've seen The Graduate, that's a very funny y- Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Brooks, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be... <laughs> just start trolling it with lines. The uh, window was going to be an allusion to The Graduate scene with the stockings. But He no, just yeah. starts singing The Sound of Silence to Dustin over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine Mel Brooks singing that song? I, I kind of hope there's a recording. <laughs> there's a recording of it somewhere. Yeah, just like off key and raspy. It'd be amazing. It's it's in the same intonation as him singing "Dancing in the Dark." <laughs> <laughs> With the sound of silence. <laughs> and uh, so that's when he finds Kenneth Mars in a wide swath audition. Kenneth Mars apparently slept in his fucking outfit to to stay in character. And in his own words, did not smell like a bed of roses. Um, now, we, we'll jump into the production bit of the film before we start talking about this plot here real quick. They set the budget at $941,000, 40-day shooting schedule, both of which are met. Um, And this is where we have to talk about the diva-ish side of Mel as Andrew was alluding to, but it also could be to my mind, first time directing kinks being worked out because there are stories in the vanity fair article that I had never heard before that really were interesting to hear, but it didn't sound like it was anything to the point of like toxic behavior so much as, him trying to figure out what, what I don't know how to read it. Well, I mean, does this is where you've got to be careful in what we call toxic and non-toxic behavior, because I don't want to say his behavior wasn't toxic, but back then it probably wasn't recognized as toxic. You right. know what I mean? Like, cause like we joke about Hitchcock and, and all of that, like Hitchcock's behavior was toxic. But yes, absolutely. I would say a lot of the reaction to it at the time is along along the lines of that god awful boys will be boys. And so yeah, like with with Mel Brooks and 
again, I don't want to recognize any toxic behavior in Mel Brooks because it's Mel Brooks, but that's not to say it doesn't exist. Right. And we should be clear that, like, it seems from the article, like, they're not trying to demonize Mel. It seems more or less that because he didn't have the experience of making a film prior, he was trying to learn as he went along, and Hertzberg ended up being a good teacher of a lot of things, like action and cut. There was there were small little lessons that Mel had to learn. Um, there As were a director saying action and cut is one of the biggies. Yeah, and you don't want to get those two mixed up. Yeah, you there, don't. You don't. There, there's a point where Hertzberg realized Brooks' lack of experience. This is from the Vanity Fair article when he saw that he had no idea where to put the camera. But Hertzberg dig did so when the cameraman Joe Caffey or Joe Coffee gave Mel a lot of craft because Coffee didn't understand the comedy. I was able to interpret. So Hertzberg acted as a go-between to like translate what Mel wanted into filmies. And uh, the Rosen, the editor Rosenblum on the film, he, Ralph Rosenblum wrote a book called when the shooting stops, the cutting begins. Um, and Rosenblum seemed to not mesh well with Brooks at certain points. Cause he, basically relegated in his book that camps were set up amid the filming. Um, uh, the actors were, the actors were in one camp, the director was in another camp. Hertzberg said there were no camps, uh, in response to Rosenblum's characterization. Zero didn't have a camp. Zero was the camp. Mel and Zero did not get along that well. For one thing, Zero had his contract, that he didn't have to work past 5.30 if he didn't want to because of his bad leg. And he used that a lot. Zero had a huge problem with authority. So it sounds like Mel is pushing, putting up with a lot of different influences on either side that create a problem for any first-time director. Um, and I found this one interesting, is that one day a young writer for the New York Times named Joan Barthel arrived on the set to write a feature on the making of the producers. Glazer was delighted. What they needed was good publicity, but to Glazer's horror, Brooks went out of his way to be offensive. What the fuck do you want? He yelled at Barthel. What do you want to know, honey? You want to tell me, want, want me to tell you the truth? Want me to give you the real dirt? Want me to tell you what's in my heart? At first, Barthel thought it was a put on part of Mel's shtick. Then it dawned on her that she was being attacked. Throughout much of the morning on the set, she later wrote, as he hurled vivid invective at one of his staff people and sarcasm at visiting at a visiting photographer, he seemed well cranky. So, I love I love like the, you get like this horrible description of like the worst behavior, and all you get is like he was a little cranky. He should have had a Snickers. Yeah, well, because it seems like it wasn't such a such an event that she felt compelled to to lay into this abusive behavior but i don't know yeah. how that reads versus 1968 i do think though that there there is a solid consistency of people who work with mel like working with mel mm-hmm. so it seems like this is first time director getting his legs and trying to work out as it's going along he's under stress um that that could be a reason. It doesn't excuse that kind of behavior. Oh God! No. Um, but it, but it it lays into a context as to where he was at this point. Um, and the stuff with zero 
really threw him for a loop to the point where Hertzberg was one of the few people that Mostel would respond to positively on the set. And they actually had to get Mostel out for 20 more minutes of filming or otherwise they'd have to reset it up and make it a longer day the next day. So Hertzberg went in and talked to Zero after he like bitched and complained like, no, I won't, no, I won't, no, I won't. He went in there. He convinced Zero to do it, but Zero said, tell you what, let me yell at you for five minutes and then I'll come out. And then he starts laying into Hertzberg, like, you son of a bitch, goddamn you. And then Hertzberg comes out, and they go, like, well, he's not going to do it. And he's like, oh, I think he'll do it. And then Zero comes out and finishes the scene. So you were putting up with Zero Mostel's hammery, too. So there's a lot of strong personalities attached to the set, to say the fucking least. Getting Um, hit by a bus will do that to you. Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine so. And being blacklisted and uh, just, you know, knowing that you initiated the role of Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof. That's willing to put an ego in anybody. Well, you're, um, you're, you're dealing with just massive ego. Yeah. It's it's a... I mean, Gene Wilder seems to be the only one that has his ego in check uh, on well, this set. Because I was going to say, like, just, just to get into the movie uh, a little bit, what, my favorite scenes in the movie, and I've always thought this about Gene Wilder, is Gene Wilder always has this fragility that yeah. comes across so when you do get that wonderful moment where he's screaming i'm wet i'm hysterical and i'm wet give me my blame it is one of the funniest moments in in the movie because you're going from like this very timid stereotypical accountant like wouldn't like say boo to a mouse kind of character to like screaming his head off, putting like zero Mostel in check, whether he means to or not. And the fact that he played it, like you had someone so abrasive. And so he went like the polar opposite mm-hmm. was so genius. Cause there's not a straight man in that scene. No. And what's more, the camera and the editing are cutting and uh, setting up shots toward the emotion of the characters. They're yeah. following the characters emotions, which is, a testament to Joe Coffey, the cameraman, but also, frankly, that interpretation that Mel must have given to Hertzberg, who Hertzberg in return is giving that interpretation, because you have, let's just get into the plot right now. We open up, we open up with with a, a very long extended scene inside of Bialystok's office. It yeah. starts off with the door of Bialystok, Max Bialystok Theatrical Agency and a silhouette of the of Max making out with the old lady, him letting her out the door. Goodbye. Goodbye. You old <laughs> buzzard. <laughs> then closes the door, goes into his cabinet of his oh, little black ladies. cabinet <laughs> um, and looks for hold me, touch me, gets hold me, touch me's photo uh, on the base, uh, on the counter. Uh, hold me, touch me comes in. She goes, hold, hold me, touch me, me. Touch, touch me. me. Not in the hall. <laughs> and then we get this, <laughs> Very, very like fun opening credit sequence that goes through the process of Max Bialystok canoodling with the old ladies, and Leo Bloom walks in <laughs> accidentally, uh, and he goes like, ah, 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 "Just oops, and get out." <laughs> and the energy that we are brought into is capitalized by that first line before the title comes up which is here I come ready or not 
it's like the introduction to Mel Brooks himself as a filmmaker. When you have yeah. that line coming in at the opening title, it's you can't help I can't help but get a shiver down my spine because I'm like it is. This is the beginning of Mel the filmmaker. Here I come ready or not. Nobody's ready for this movie. And he gets hold me touch me out of the office and uh the check that she gives him goes right into the landlord's hand. <laughs> uh he who signs the least must pay rent. Oh Lord, uh, heareth my plea and strike him down. He maketh a blighteth on the land. Don't listen to him; he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he 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 notices that Ma- that Leo's been hiding and cowering behind a corner, and <laughs> they're long delayed before Jean goes, "Oops." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I do Who like I like before that though when uh, Gene Wilder. And the landlord are hiding out in the hallway together. And Gene Wilder's like around the corner, like and he just already sneaks. petrified. He does that sneak, like Yeah. <laughs> and the landlord is like, shh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh we get Max Bialystock's plight as Leo Bloom, the accountant from Whitehall and Marx, sits down to do Max's books. Bialystok has struck a reef, as he says. Uh, other men sail through life, but I haven't. Um, and uh, I'm drowning. I, like he, We are seeing the desperate pleas of a man in, in terror of poverty. And he used to be the king of Broadway, the king of all Broadway. Six shows running at once, lunch at Delmonico's, $100 suits. This man has hit a low ebb. And he reveals the way he makes an income now is hundreds of little old ladies stopping off for Max Bialystok's for a last thrill on the way to the cemetery. And this sympathy that he is trying to extend to Leo uh, ultimately catapults the plot because Leo discovers an error in the books because he's $2,000 off of a $58,000 play that he produced but he raised 60,000 and he used 2,000 to go to a Turkish bath who cares <laughs> you know move a few dec- decimal points around um, Leo says I'll do it he goes thank you I knew I could con you what never mind do it do it <laughs> and Leo goes into the accounting of it and he goes it's amazing it's absolutely amazing but under the right circumstances a producer can make more money with a flop than he could with a hit now I don't know if anybody in in show business history has ever actually tried this scheme. <laughs> Michael Bay does it all the time. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh. <laughs> what I what I love, Zach. This is the difference between you, me, and and Tyler. Is like you and me come out with our really really dated references, and Tyler's like, no, I'm I'm going to bring modern movies into this. <laughs> I picked Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> I get Megan I pick, Fox. I picked John Turturro. I brought back Peter Cullen. Where did I go right? <laughs> <laughs> and now I wear a rented tux. It's <laughs> two weeks overdue. Look at look at me now, Mark. I'm wearing a cardboard belt. <laughs> yeah. I'm wearing a cardboard belt in Miami. Miami. <laughs> in Miami. Uh, now, um, so the plot is set upon. Max Bialystok 
says, you're genius. You've, you've come up with this wonderful scheme. And Leo's like, I'm in no scheme. And the way the scene breaks out, it's very much Max trying to convince Leo to go along with this plan, which in turn exposes all of Leo's anxieties and <laughs> panic attacks. My blanket! My blanket! Give me back my blue blanket! Here's a question, though. How long is this scene? Because it is a long scene. Like, if you told me it was quarter of the movie, I would believe you. Yeah, I... I the believe runtime of the movie is only an hour and 28 minutes. Yeah. yeah. I would say that this is a good 20 minute, like 15 to 20 minutes at the least. Yeah. yeah. Like this is not a short scene and it, but it, I, I love how it isn't ashamed of its runtime because it is giving us these characters and it's exposition, but it's entertaining exposition. It's the yeah. kind of a exposition you want out of this type of idea. The big thing that I take away from this always is that you are never feeling like it's a dump of information. You are feeling as if you have come across these two fascinating characters that you want to watch in a Petri dish for an hour, and they go through their life story in a way that you can't help but crack up at and the blue blanket scene is even better than max bialystok's little monologue to my mind because leo's talking about himself through a nervous tick and not through uh telling his life story about being a mild-mannered accountant um and and more of that actually comes through as max bialystok calms him down from the panic attack and says let me take you to lunch they go to a hot dog cart which is al fresco the finest um (laughs) He takes him around New York. I love the shot under the bridge where he comes out from the bridge. He's coaxing Leo out and Leo comes out with a balloon in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he takes him to the top of the Empire State Building. He goes, there it is, Leo. It's they all a, there. On, they ride a carousel together. Come they on, do. Man. Yes, they ride a carousel. <laughs> and he takes him to a strip show. Yes. Um, and you see Leo War sucking his thumb. Yeah, P-I-E-C-E. And he's sucking his thumb going, Leo, he who hesitates. <laughs> <laughs> and we end up at the fountain at Lincoln Center. It's the Rebson Fountain where we have this beautiful wide, wide shot. This movie isn't shot in CinemaScope or any like fancy techniques, but it's just a very well-composed wide shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know... Max goes, you don't think you're in a, or Leo goes, if we get caught, we're going to go to prison. And Leo, or and Max goes, you think you're not in prison now? Living in a gray little room, going to a gray little job, leading a gray little life? That's right. I'm a nothing. I spend my life counting other people's money. People I'm smarter than, better than. Where's my share? Where's Leo Bloom's share? I want... I want... I want everything I've ever seen in the movies! Leo, say you'll join me! I'll do it! And that fountain fucking explodes. Yeah. According to the memoir, Mel had talked to the person who ran the fountain, and he told him, well, it gets to this certain height, but if I really want to, I can push it up, and he goes, do it. I think it's like 25 (laughs) feet up. And so he pushed it, and that was the last thing they shot during filming was this scene. Mm. And you get this wonderful, like, 
un, uh, like low level angle like on Leo walking around the fountain. I am Leo Bloom. It doesn't. I'm me. It doesn't matter. I can do what I want. You well, know. You get that, and, and going to the thing you said earlier about new wave, like that is a very French new wave, yeah, style of filming because it's off tripod. Mm-hmm. It's shaky. It's like following the actor like you can tell this isn't planned camera move it's like just yeah. go with him and that is a very like yeah the the new wave of uh goddard and Truffaut. like they would do that stuff and it creates like that intimacy which suddenly you're seeing this character go from timid blue blanket weakling to very misguided thinking they're strong weakling and it's kind of wonderful yeah well, it's also you have this big wide shot and the final detail of that scene is uh, Bialystok feeding Bloom a, a spoon of ice cream just to like call back to one, Bialystok is feeding Bloom lies and yeah. Bloom is a child. And I, I just really like that detail, but like far away. So as like a viewer, you're kind of omnipresent in that scene. Yeah. And you, you, you get, I, I love how with those lies being fed though, it, Max is feeding a truth. He is feeding a truth about like you're better than what you think you are. True. Like it, it is now granted he's using it to con him, but <laughs> yeah. but you you get sort of the heart that comes to fruition by the end. It's clear that Ma- Max needs him and he's about to learn that he's going to need him for more reasons, but also like he knows that this man has never been outside his office. The only way to really sell this is to speak to him as honestly as one can about the difference between living a life of show business and living a life in an office. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, in the real world, that's a that's a very different way of looking at things. But in a film, it's a perfect sentiment. It's a perfect sentiment for that film. And it leads him into that dedication to finding a way out of his circumstance. I find it charming. It's like it if movies are designed to embrace our wildest dreams, this is about as wild a fucking dream as you're going to get. <laughs> um, and um, it bleeds them into reading all of these plays. Um, one of them is Murphysis. <laughs> yeah, Franz Kafka. <laughs> I love how at the end he goes, it's too good. <laughs> we get a and, and they but. You know, Leo's fed up. He's read too much. Let's face it. We'll never find it. We'll never find it. Huh? We'll never find it. Huh? That's <laughs> it's like letter to the Fuhrer. Yeah, smell it. <laughs> Springtime for Hitler. A gay romp with Adolf and Eva at Bertischgarten. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's practically a love letter to Hitler. Like, and they, 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 they found it. The worst play ever written. It won't run a week. It's got a close on page four. They go to find Franz Lieken, 126 Jane Street. They, uh, we get a location shot of going to the apartment tenements. We get the concierge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a madam. I'm a concierge. <laughs> He's on the roof with his bites. With his bears. He keeps bites. <laughs> My husband this used to be a place to... you could sit on the stoop, but now with the bears. <laughs> <laughs> My husband used to be the concierge, but now I'm the concierge. <laughs> That's what Mel Brooks is really good. Like he 
great at writing dialogue that on the surface isn't funny, but yeah. like when you hear it, it's freaking hysterical. Yeah, there's not a lot of information on Madeline Cates as an actor, but she's fucking hilarious in that scene. <laughs> yeah, I, I my favorite part though out of like them meeting um, Liebkin is before he'll sell them the play, he makes them wear swastikas and take yeah. Siegfried off for Adolf Elizabeth Hitler. Yeah, because he is descended from a long line of English queens. And I know yes. I'm quoting the musical, but it's hilarious. Well, um, fun- funnily enough, though, the Siegfried Oath was in the script, but he it took was it in out. The script. Yeah. And what that what that scene parlays into is them walking down the street to go to Roger Dupree's house and Carmen opens the door and is like, can I take your coats and your swastikas? And just swastikas. <laughs> yeah, take your coat, your hat, and your swastikas. <laughs> It's just like I like I like how in the in the movie musical he, he when he goes the yes which is if you watch Mel's films the yes gag it it it's it really starts in uh in this film and then this continues yeah. throughout his films I love how Dom DeLuise uh, does it and he goes sounds like steam escaping <laughs> um. <laughs> But they meet Franz Liebkin, Kenneth Mars up on the roof, and they go, Franz Liebkin? And he goes, I was never a member of the Nazi party. I'm only following orders. <laughs> I was not I'm not responsible. Why, per- why do you persecute me? <laughs> um, it's important to know he's wearing a German helmet. Yeah. <laughs> With he, medals, he, like, on his, on his yeah. uh, shirt. Don't do anything to upset him. We need that play. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. Prior to us doing this discussion, I'd been engrossed in a book, uh, an audio book about the Nuremberg trials. And it's funny, it's funny that I found in that book was that the Nuremberg trials were set up so that the excuse of I was only following orders was non admissible in court. <laughs> and so him using that, it's the de facto response from a Nazi when they're yeah. being interrogated. I wasn't responsible. I was only following orders. Like that, that, that him just running through all of the excuses in virtually one sentence yeah. uh, or like a series of like sentences in a paragraph is like fucking funny. And, yeah. um, he, uh, he uh he tells them this is no place to talk because <laughs> he's going into Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber. <laughs> wow, we should talk inside. <laughs> and, like, oh, just... He he oh. does the song when he's singing um oh, oh beautiful fierce spacious guys remember you what do you want? <laughs> um, but that again goes to show how freaking clever Mel Brooks is because this movie could have just been and I think I, I would think unkind critics will still say it is but I disagree like just a bunch of crass sight jokes of oh I'm using Nazis I'm a naughty boy yeah and because he imbues it like you said like he gave the greatest hits of the Nuremberg trial excuses mm-hmm. um and he's doing something so audacious as staging like this mega musical based on one of the worst people in history. Yeah. But still imbues it with meaning, like meaning and anger. Because we talked about this last time, like it is an angry film. Yes. Um, and it wears its anger on its sleeve. But to Mel Brooks, it's like, I'm going to bring him down with jokes. Like yeah. just leave it with me. And I think a lesser filmmaker 
um, one who hadn't had those experiences in World War II, um, both abroad and in their own barracks, um, wouldn't have been able to produce this and make it funny. It would have been like the crass, um, offensive musical that they put on. Yeah. They, always just, they would just talk too much about Churchill. We know about yeah, yeah. With his cigars and his and his rotten paintings. Rotten! <laughs> there was a painter. I was a cigar in his mouth. Hitler, Hitler there was a painter. One afternoon, two coats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because, like, the way Kenneth plays him and the way he's written, he turns him into a human character with flaws and foibles. And yeah. thus it makes it easy to laugh at Franz Liebkind. Yeah. Um, he's the one character in the producers where virtually nobody will have sympathy for him apart from the, apart from maybe the end when he's just leading them in song for prisoners of love. But you never really feel, you don't feel sympathy for Franz Liebkind. You feel no. sympathy for Max and Leo because we've set up that even though they're con artists and criminals, they are, doing it for reasons that subvert society. And I, I, I like the idea that Mel goes into the gutter in location wise. He'll start, he starts in as elegant of New York as it can possibly feed from Ashby Allistock. And then he goes into the, into the lower East end and these tenement buildings and they're pulling up the dreck of the world around them, whether it be, escaped Nazis writing plays um, and societally the way they pull Roger Debris out of the circumstance because he's, he's an outsider himself. It's about gathering a band of outsiders in a certain respect mm -hmm. to put on a production for their con. And in the process, and, and I think that that is exemplified by the, the way the film looks as raw as it does is that it's, it's, it's the underbelly or the, outsiders reaching into high society and grabbing it by the balls. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's how he kind of exemplifies it to a certain degree. Do you think though, in part why the con works for the audience to be sympathetic is in a way, in a weird, weird way, it feels like a victimless crime because mm -hmm. what he's doing to the little old ladies is what he's been doing all along. And they're happy to give him the money. They never see the return. It's just that this time he's trying to do it. So he sees the money um, as well. But like, you know, the Roger Dupree at the end of the day is still getting paid. All the actors are still getting paid. Yeah. Franz Liebkind is getting paid. Um, and sorry, the show just didn't work out, but here is the paycheck for the work that you did do. Yeah, it does feel weirdly victimless, even though that's not actually true. The little old but, ladies are the victims, yeah. But, but even at the end, when they're in the trial scene and all the old ladies are sitting behind Bloom and Bialystok, and you they're all wearing black because yeah. they're mourning, and it's like, yeah, it's because they're losing their love interest, but yeah, so that, like, even the old ladies don't see. Don't see Bialystok as a bad guy. It, yeah, it goes bad. back to that last line: "Whom has Max Bialystok really wronged?" Yes. Yeah. And 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 it comes to it 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 comes to fruition. On honestly, like the scene following Franz Liebkind. So they get the the contract signed by Liebkind to make his dream a reality. Um, they <laughs> walk past. I love this shot. 
they love they walk past some trash cans and Leo's covering his armband because they got arm Nazi armbands on. And he goes, I won't wear this. I don't care how much how important it is. All right, fine. And they take off their Nazi armbands, throw them in the trash, and Leo spits on it, and Zero then spits on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little sentiment to know that like they don't agree with the Nazi like premise. They're using Nazis for their own yeah. criminal purposes. And we get Max going into a car and going in the days to come, you will see very little of me for Max Bialystok is about to enter little old lady land. <laughs> and then you just get a montage, which he uses to experiment in some places that push in through the restaurant yeah. door is great. And it holds on that one shot and the violin player playing. And then he pouring the wine down his pants. <laughs> like <laughs> uh, We get, uh, we got um, uh, him at a buggy going like, I love you and I swear to God you don't look a day over 65. Um, we get him riding a motorcycle. <laughs> and there's a lot of good close-ups on Zero in this movie. There's the one where with Rudolfo, uh, with the, the, the Contessa and the chauffeur thing that he's playing mm-hmm. with Hold Me, Touch Me. Um, and... Uh, the uh and then we get this the funny one the funniest one to my mind which is um he goes up to a door pushes the buzzer and he goes it's max bialystok on that shot while you hear a series of locks being unlocked. (laughs) Then he comes out of the bushes in the last one and he's got the check in his hand. And now they've got the money. They've got the money. And now we are set upon Max realizing the enormity of it because they go through the percentages. And he goes like, "How many? How much percentage can you sell of a play, Max? You can only produce. You can only sell a hundred percent of anything. And how much have we raised so far? Twenty five thousand percent. Thousand. Give me that thing." And he grabs his blue blanket and he pushes it up against <laughs> his cheek. Uh, and he goes, "I need to see that money." He opens up the safe. He goes, "Hello, boys." <laughs> only Zero Mostel can deliver that line. Apart from Nathan Lane, like those are the only yeah. two people that can, I because it's that hello boys, <laughs> you need a skeezy a skeezy delivery like that, and those two are perfect at delivering it. <laughs> but do you know what's weird? Like the producer's musical softened a lot of the crasser, uglier parts of this movie. Yeah. Like um, Nathan Lane doesn't play Bialystok as ugly as zero does right like there's yeah. a, there's a safety to nathan lane's version yeah yeah he's a Man little bit mouse hunt for god's sake he's yeah. a little bit more um i would equate him to he's a little bit more uh, uh outwardly skeezy to the point where it's like it's, so silly it's, it's cute cartoony it's cartoony yeah. yes that's a good yeah thank you cartoony um whereas Zero is Max Bialystok. Yes. Yes. And that doesn't take anything away from Lane. It's more just like that. This film is demanding. Yeah. Zero 
inhabiting that character to a T. The and, musical wouldn't have worked if they had gone as skis. Yeah, no, you because you need to lighten him up for what comes at the end, especially, yeah. and because otherwise a song like "Betrayed" wouldn't work. Yeah, like you have to give Lane a little bit more love in his heart at the beginning, whereas yeah. Zero learns love by the end. Um, but. Max is going to go out and get himself a toy, and we cut to Lee Meredith as Ula. Ula, uh, to dance. Good day. Ula. Which apparently Lee Lee Mary uh, uh, Lee Meredith said that Good day is it was a like a greeting that was ver- barely used in Sweden by the time that that movie was made. So, yeah. like it was like it, they were trying to figure out what language it actually was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Ula is a secretary that Max met at the public library. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I love about that actress? If you watch the making of of uh, the producers, they interview her, yeah. and she does this thing that a lot of actors who have had like the one small part during the night, and to this day, people are coming up to me going, "Good job, good day," and I'm like, "No, they're not." I I would hope they are. They might also be telling her um, uh, lines from the Sunshine Boys because she's the nurse in the sketch in the Sunshine Boys. <laughs> Um, that George Burns uh, that works for George Burns is character Al in the sketch. And it's weird that like, I don't, I don't know of many other Lee, Lee Meredith performances I've seen, but they've been in two very high profile comedies in yeah. my time of watching stuff. And she plays it very well. They tell Ula to go to work and it's just her dancing. She's not wearing a bra. It's, <laughs> it's very much, we it's the secretary chasing the secretary around the desk outdated it motif is all get out especially in a post weinstein world but uh here it doesn't look like they do anything like it's just it, it literally is just mustel barely touching the surface but he is portrayed rightfully so as skeezy old man leering at a young yeah. woman um so which mel brooks, brooks is so good at yeah mel brooks doesn't like deify that behavior (laughs) but mel brooks does that behavior in pretty much every role that like you think about him as the mayor in blazing saddles you think about him as king louis the 15th that's actually very fair yeah no that's true he He always goes for the skis but he and he never i don't but he never tries to like deify the person who's inhabiting that character when he's when he's the mayor the mayor's treated as a corrupt fuck (laughs) <laughs> a corrupt, inept fuck. Yeah, I was and, say, a corrupt idiot. Yeah, yeah. And King Louis is treated as a jackass. <laughs> like he, I am the people. They are the people. I'm the sovereign. I love them. Pull. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be the king. Yeah, yeah. He 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 actively knows what button he's pushing. Yeah. And um, they um, they go they uh, Leo tells them to go easy on the spending, and Max goes, "Never mind that. I've just." I've just made a deal that will secure the to, to assure us the worst play ever. At ten o'clock, we have an appointment with Roger Debris. Is he good? I mean, is he bad? He's the worst. He stinks. And they go to Roger Debris' apartment. Uh, Carmen Gee opens the door. Yes. 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 I am Carmen Gee, uh, Monsieur Debris' private secretary. Will you please remove your shoes? White, white, white is the color of our carpet. <laughs> In the musical, they call him his common law assistant. So they're clearly, they updated it a little bit more to yeah. address gay marriage at that point. Um, and uh, 
it's at this point we could talk a little bit about LGBTQ representation in Mel Brooks films. It's we talked about it last he, time. He's not punching. He's not. He's not punching down. He's punching up. He's punching up, but I would say like the punching up isn't as high as other areas in in Mel Brooks films, which yeah. I mean, very much of its time. It was very forward for its time. Yeah, I I want to elaborate on that, but keep going. Sorry, but I would say these are the parts of Mel Brooks that has aged very very badly. Yeah, there's yes. a there's there's like a rendered uncomfortableness that exists whenever yeah. there's a like lgbtqia character that appears right in, like in, in to be or not to be that's the only movie where it's that the character is treated as a real human yeah and i th- and i think mel knew he had to do it that they had to do it that way because of the subject that was being handled yeah. and this would be the first world mm-hmm. war ii film to address homosexuality and its persecution in nazi germany here This is the thing that I actually being a student of Hitchcock pays off with this because Hitchcock was known for incorporating homosexual characters or homoerotic context. And it's most exemplified to my mind in Rope, where you have the two kid, the two the two boys who kill the uh, who kill the who kill their fellow student and put him in the trunk. They're mm-hmm. supposedly lovers, as uh, accorded by Arthur Lorenz, the man who wrote the script. And well, it's it had way to be more hidden. explicit in the original play. Yeah, and they had to hide it for Hollywood reasons because they would refer to it as it. You couldn't yeah. talk about it. it. We're in 1967. The rules have already kind of shifted around. Valenti is now mm-hmm. heading the MPAA, which is, for all of its problems, far more accepting than the, the code was. And the Breen office. So this portrayal is allowed to not vilify a homosexual character. These aren't villains, but they're also treated as a joke. And that's where the uncomfortable part comes in. Yeah, they're they're not allowed. They're they're caricatures. Yes. And, you know. Which at the the time is revolutionary because they wouldn't have even allowed to be fully caricatured and out at that point. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, even when you get into uh, the late 70s when, oh, God, which Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever, and you mm-hmm. had Mr. Wynn and Mr. Kid, mm-hmm. like, again, revolutionary that you saw, like, these two men holding hands, and that wasn't, like, the joke. But, again, still caricatures. So I think, like... Yes, for the producers, it was revolutionary, but then it just remained stagnant for so long. Yes. Well, and then it becomes like it's revolutionary in 1960, but then it becomes a trope in like yeah. 90s and 2000 films before. Oh, I mean, really the, the gay panic that. of the 90s was just yeah. ridiculous. But the gay panic and the existence of how um, that community is portrayed in cinema. Mm-hmm. exists because they saw it in 1960 and said look yeah we can continue doing this and everybody's okay with it yeah and like yeah. i think that's where what mel brooks did for them it's like two steps forward and three steps back mm-hmm. but i will say this like comparing it to like the 90s which is probably an unfair comparison but the the very redeeming thing about this scene is at no point are bialystok and bloom uncomfortable 
No. They never very uncomfortable in that scene. Well, well, wait, yo, yo, wait. Let's let's take it back. Max is comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah. Max Leo's not. Yeah, Leo, no, that's fair. That's fair. Light a cigarette. He likes you. <laughs> <laughs> I so I here's think the thing. <laughs> Didn't I meet you on a summer cruise? <laughs> I've never been on a summer cruise. <laughs> Sorry for the pun. For, what pun? Shut up. He thinks he's Just winning. Shut up. He thinks he's funny. <laughs> now, for all the caricature that possesses, I love Carmen and Roger. I love yeah. them as characters. I love them in this and in the remake. They are so lovely as characters. They really, really do want to put on a good show. They <laughs> they do aspire to greatness. Uh, it, it's, it's the... Uh, it's it's just their exuberance outweighs the negative energy that Le- Max and Leo are putting out into the world with their scheme. Yeah. It's a nice contrast. Uh, that shot in the elevator, by the way, when they're going up and they're so close in. <laughs> it's an act- That's the actual size of the elevator. It's not cheated. And Wilder reported he's just like, that was uncomfortable as all hell. <laughs> And um, they we they get Roger to he go he agrees with it. He's like, uh, I read it, I devoured it, I loved it. it uh, uh, it's uh, he uh, it taught me a lot. I never realized that the Third Reich meant Germany. Germany. I mean, it's filled with historical goodies like that. <laughs> <laughs> but that whole third act has to go. They're losing the war. Excuse me. It's. T- too damn beat. Wait a minute. <laughs> I see a line of beautiful girls dressed as stormtroopers, leather boots, whips on the hips. SM, love it. Two, three, kick, turn, two, two, kick, turn. I love that the idea of Roger Debris as a character is that he's tired of dopey showgirls and gooey gowns. Two, three, kick, turn, turn, kick, turn, and then he does a reverse of it. Kick, turn, one, two, three, kick, turn, like. He has to change his mind to decide like what would be worth his time. And he has the great line, which is, uh, this is a big decision. It might affect the course of my entire life. I shall have to think about it. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> I love that line. I love that delivery. Hewitt and uh, Gary Beach, they both do it very well. Hewitt does it really good, but he's like, I'll do it. <laughs> um, and uh, they get Roger Debris secured. Uh, they begin casting for springtime for hitler and in one of the most audacious shots you have a cut of a couple of hitlers auditioning and then you expand to a wide shot of a swath of hitlers auditioning with all the singing hitlers to the right and all the dancing hitlers to the left (laughs) would that be the correct term a swath of hitlers like it's a murder of crows uh it's uh it's it's a A bunker of hitlers bunker of hitlers That's staying in. (laughs) (laughs) Do you notice, who noticed here, the Hitler in a Speedo, just (laughs) flexing, not practicing the the Heil. He's just going like, uh, uh, checking out two tickets to the Hitler gun show. (laughs) This is, it's audacious as sin and, and Roger Debris has to uh, maintain order. We get our first swath of auditions. Uh, the first one sound, looks like Frank Oz and sounds like a Frank Oz Muppet. <laughs> Goes, I was the lead tenor of the Albuquerque Opera Company for the last two seasons. 
I just finished the road tour of Lilac Time, and last season I was up for the lead in the Broadway production of The Gypsy Lover. What happened? I didn't get it. Well, Arthur, what are you going to sing for us? I would like to sing A Wandering Minstrel Eye. Very well. We get Jason Green, and he comes out in this full regalia, German heritage uniform from World War One. Well, Jason, and what have you been up to lately? For the last 16 years, I have been touring with the USO. Well, and what are you going to sing for us? Have you ever heard the German band? No. This is the name of the song I am going to sing. Oh. You will play it? The auditions for Hitler are funny as sin because you have like these people all basically it's the mustache that's selling it. And then they're just putting out whatever comes out of their mouth. The last one looks like Hitler if he were Clark Gable. Because <laughs> he has this old Clark Gable look to him, like older Clark Gable before he died making the misfits. Is like that the that. guy is that the guy that like barely opens his mouth and then just his Nope, next. <laughs> no, it's the last one who's singing a cowboy ballad because he's got a cowboy hat on. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he says, thank you. And then he finishes the song and goes, Pfft. like, <laughs> um, and then we, it's useless. We'll never find a Hitler. And then in walks LSD. What is your name? Lorenzo, oh, Lorenzo, baby. Lorenzo St. Dubois. Well, my friends call me LSD. And what have you done, LSD? Man, about six months. But I'm on probation, and I'm cool, man. I'm straight now. I mean, what do you do best? Hey, man, I can't do that here. That's why they put me away, babe. Oh, sing, sing. This is, this is Dick Sean. He was, this is the kind of character he was best known for. He would caricature counterculture personalities he did it as sylvester and it's a mad 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 world mm-hmm. um many people would also know him as the voice of snow miser in the year without a santa claus a uh, very yeah, funny man. guy very funny guy uh and he comes on and uh max goes let him audition what do we have to lose um uh, knowing that this guy might be incredibly dumb and he sings a song that is not written by mel brooks um he sings love power <laughs> so funny Talking it rips about. up the flowers at the end. I've Did destroyed you... the flowers, just like I've destroyed everything else. L- listening to the the lyrics, they're actually like somewhat powerful, but they're so like broad that they're hilarious they're so when delivered. Top. It's yeah. like a Grey's Anatomy 
voiceover of yeah. like just general sayings about love and then that's it and it's supposed to be powerful but it's not because it's yeah. so vague <laughs> and, and to give proper credit the music's by norman blackman and the lyrics are by herbert hartig um he's credited in the film as herb hartig but it, these lyrics are just like and i give a flower to the big fat cop he takes his club and he beats me up. <laughs> Give a flower to the garbage man. He stuffs my girl in the garbage can. And I'll give it to the landlord when the rent comes around. He throws it in the toilet and he flush it down. It goes into the sewer with the yuck running through her. And it runs into the river that we drink. Hey, why you? Man, it's later than you think Boy, you got just one more chance Come on, baby, while I dance This song is just pushing the button of the counterculture And... I'm glad that they removed it for the remake because this is only Dick Sean could get away with this character. <laughs> well, it doesn't and, make sense in 2000. Yeah, it does. Yeah, especially. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing, just narratively, is like it's lovely that Roger Dupree in the in the remake, like you've got to have an ego on yourself. And I think this is a great theme of Mel Brooks's ego. You've got to have like such an ego of yourself to take this play springtime for Hitler. And go, I can make this a hit. Yeah. And what makes it even better in the remake is like only I can play Hitler. <laughs> this play will only work if I play Hitler. And it's so funny. So, I mean, I love lsd in the original but i agree with you in the remake i'm glad they cut him out because it's just like it was too much of his time yeah yeah it, but but at the same time i would argue that it holds up as a performance and as a decision like because yeah. you can we can remember a cue to to make a hippie joke we we have that in our dna now it's so embedded in the culture that that joke can still work. We know what he's meant to do. Even if you're not specifically in tune with what the counterculture was, you get it that this guy would would conceivably make the play even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I understand Max's logic to that degree. As far as it holding up and whatnot, I feel like it's it's a performance that in a certain way kind of makes the film take a left turn. Mm-hmm. There's there's something about it that makes it take a left turn, but it's not until LSD is firmly planted in Springtime for Hitler that it makes itself come back full circle. Um, I, I don't know. Like I might be a little off there, but I, that's what I feel like. It makes it take a left turn in order to prove a point that this would be the ideal Hitler. See, I think, because I'm glad you say left turn, because the thing for me is my least favorite scene in the movie is after springtime and they run away and Franz Liebkind is trying to, you know, kill them. And then like the FBI and everyone turn up and try and kill. And th- that whole scene becomes very farcical and doesn't really fit the world we've been in. And I think like LSD is like the first symbol of that because it is so extreme and weird. Yeah, it that's and, true. Yeah. 
that's yeah, that's I, very true. He is he is a much more chaotic influence, and we'll get to that scene in a minute because I I'll, I'll push back a little bit because I love the way he shoots that scene and that yeah. farce and the way the farce unfolds. But I agree, it throws off the energy a bit to the film that we've just seen yeah. up to this point. But they he he ends the audition eating a flower. <laughs> Zero goes, that's our... No, 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 not eating the flower, sorry. He unpeels a banana, and then he throws the he, banana away, throws the banana away, puts the peel up to his ear, and starts sucking his thumb. <laughs> that's our Hitler! And we get the opening <laughs> opening night montage. Opening we finally night. see... <laughs> it's opening night! Uh, Max Bialystok's latest show, Will It Flop or Will It Go? Um, yeah. Uh, we get high society at last. We've gone out of the gutter into the high society of the big premiere. Max goes to t- goes to bribe the New York Times critic uh, as one more assurance that this play will not get good reviews. Um, Franz Liebkin arrives in a in a motorcade <laughs> in a motorcycle with somebody driving him. Uh, I like I, I I love how he goes into um, uh, into the theater. He goes today Broadway. Tomorrow, <laughs> just <laughs> holding the glow, like trying, you know, <laughs> um, and we get springtime for Hitler. Now, this is the film. This is the moment that makes or breaks people to a lot of degrees. Um, if you're talking about the the audience that would have seen it at the time, because it's so fucking audacious, yeah, and so fucking inappropriate. <laughs> well, because there's this. For the best so, reasons, I should say. So the scene we're talking about is obviously the musical, Springtime for Hitler. The big yeah. number. The, the big yeah. number. Germany was having trouble, what a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? We looked around, and then we found the man for you and me. It's hilarious on one of your LSD, like being like, oh man, like whenever anything goes wrong. But there's a story in Mel Brooks's autobiography, and again, it's important to remember this movie came out like 20 or so years after the end of World War II. This is this is a fresh, still a fresh memory, yeah. and a guy got up to leave. He was offended. Um, because and he makes a very loud comment like I was there, I fought and uh, I fought and everything. And Mel Brooks happened to be there, and he catches him. And is like, what regiment were you in? And but the guy says like, oh, I was in this regiment. Like I did the same stuff as you. And it's a really interesting story of how people living through the same thing can deal with it in different ways there's no right or wrong way to deal with what really was a trauma like having to go to europe and fight in world war ii and this guy wants to treat it with 
reverence and solemnness and, and everything, which I believe you absolutely should. But Mel Brooks wants to treat it with irreverence. And that's not to say like one is better or more right or wrong than the other. It's just you, you've got to accept that people are coming from the same place. They're just going to end up in different locations. Yeah. It, yeah. Let's stop on, on this to, 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 to touch on the idea that we talked about in the first episode, you know, it is perfectly reasonable to not find this funny. Yeah. It's not, it's not a shame on anybody who's viewing this product. I, and I recognize to a lot of degree that, especially if you're Jewish, this hits even harder. You can be a human and be uh, appalled by what Hitler did. But if you're Jewish, it hits even harder. Um, there's, there's a reason why Steven Spielberg stopped making the Nazis cartoonish villains in an Indiana Jones movie after making Schindler's List. Yeah. When you've been through an experience adapting that kind of material and being steeped in it, you can't help but connect culturally to the atrocities that Adolf Hitler committed and the ideals of the Nazi regime, which sadly blossomed back into our shores over the last four to five, six years going onward. They're still fucking around. Mm -hmm. And I find Mel... The reason why I side with Mel has to do with the idea of the idea of you can you this energy that this regime and this asshole gave out in life is that I'm not going to give you an ounce of my positive energy or any of my energy period you mean nothing to me. It's more of a emotional victory. Mhm and not uh, a philosophical or political victory. And I think that that's an important thing that Mel brings to the table is that he's doing it as a victory of the heart. It's like, you don't matter. You're nothing. You're ridiculous with your stupid uniform and your stupid beliefs. Your ideas are stupid. Everything that you've built up is stupid. Mm -hmm. Like it's everything that you are as a totalitarian government is based on a farce and a less of a human being. Like, you know, it's just, yeah, it's ridiculous. Then, it's, it's, yeah. But then you can go the other way because Chaplin did say after the full atrocities came to light, he wouldn't have made the great dictator, right. which arguably is one of the funniest takedowns of Hitler like ever. Um, but With Jack Oakey as Mu- the Mussolini equivalent is really <laughs> fucking funny the way he keeps slapping Hinkle's back. <laughs> but he's like, I couldn't in good conscience made that movie because then you're making light of such evil. Um, so yeah, I mean, it goes down to that individual and, you know, to the Spielberg thing, um, was it Scorsese was originally meant to direct Schindler's List and he went, no, you need a, a yeah. Jewish filmmaker, so he gave it to Spielberg. I think the producers are the same way, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like a lesser filmmaker and probably if it was a non-Jewish filmmaker, it would have just been a crass 90-minute comedy mm. of Hitler jokes. Yeah, and I do we, think it is, it is that you brought up a good point about the fact that he is a Jewish, a, a Jew, a Jewish man owning the trauma yeah and 
presenting it as the farce that it is. It's no different than Lubitsch. Yeah. Lubitsch doing it in 1942. And there's an element of owning the emotional trauma and expounding upon it in a way that is appropriate for you. And for Mel, it's treating these guys like the clowns that they are. Mm -hmm. And I know that, especially in the world that we've experienced in the last couple of years, it's very hard to laugh at something that's scary. Yeah. But I always divert back to these guys are fucking clowns and they don't deserve an ounce of my anger and frustration. They deserve my fucking laughter at the audacity they have to believe the things they believe. Well, you know, just because we're, this movie is inviting you to laugh, it doesn't take away from the anger. No, yeah, it yeah. doesn't. If anything, it helps release the anger yeah. in a certain area. Um, I think that in in the long scheme of things, for people listening, if you feel uncomfortable with the humor that Mel purports when it comes to dealing with the Holocaust and Nazism, it's more than fair. I will never, I will never bash anybody for feeling the way they feel about that. For us, we've found it to be a positive outlet to laugh at terrifying evil. And it's 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 brought to its broadest degree to the point of an above shot of a dancing swastika. It, <laughs> if you're going to lampoon the, uh, the, the awful vitriol of the Nazis, that's the way you do it. Like, that's the capper of it. Uh, yeah. As Mel said when he uh, later on in his years when he was dealing with Blazing Saddles, uh, one of the people went up to him and said, "We've rung the uh, we're, we're at the bell. You've got to ring the bell." Yeah. And he rung the bell in a big bad way. And I love the reaction shots of the audience, just mm -hmm. fucking jaws dropped, <laughs> mouth agape. Um, and I love the shot because it culminates the emotional friendship of Bialystok and Bloom to a certain extent and Mel as a person is you have this old woman walking out past Bialystok and Bloom and she goes talk about bad taste and then it goes to them shaking their hands <laughs> like we got away with it I, I will tell you though the, the reaction to that dancing swastika is completely different when you see the show live now it is yeah. like the biggest chair of the night. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, and it, and the way Susan Stroman was able to do it with the mirror is with fantastic. the mirror and everything yeah. is amazing. But yeah, no, it's it, it's. I mean, I would never have watched this movie with my grandfather who who served. He would not have found it funny in the slightest. <laughs> um, you know, he's same age as Mel Brooks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. There's no right or wrong way to feel about this movie. It's you just got to respect people's opinions of it. Yeah. yeah. I found myself like cringing. You cringe at it and you laugh at it at the same time, and I think that in and of itself is is Mel Brooks, right? You're, you're cringing and laughing, and internally yeah. you're you're struggling with trying to figure that out you know what yeah. the laugh is the laugh is oh my fucking god that's yeah, like, sure. that's that <laughs> yeah. kind of laugh like oh but my really fucking though, god yeah that's what it is you're like holy shit this man did that and it's like, <laughs> i'm and not and i can't take my eyes off of it like what the fuck is happening it's like jeff goldblum he did it that crazy son of a bitch he did it <laughs> you crazy <laughs> son of a bitch you did it and again what sells it is the sincerity of the performers. Yeah. Like if other than LSD of all the performers on stage were mugging for the camera and being like, 
oh, we're doing this and this is very naughty. Like, it wouldn't have worked. But the fact that everyone on that stage was like, this is a Broadway show. See, we're going to put on the best show I've ever seen. That's what makes it so, so funny. Yeah. And, and another thing to add to it, Mel uses, with the exception of to be or not to be, Mel uses the Nazis as set dressing to yeah. a certain degree yeah. for for a, a proponent of offensive humor. He's not, if, 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 if springtime for Hitler and thus the Nazi ideology were at the core of the plot, it would be a very different experience. Yeah. Um, Franz Liebkind is treated at a joke you laugh at. He's not, we're not asked to sympathize with Franz you Liebkind. You never at all. sympathize with Franz no. Liebkind. Yeah, you, you can take laugh joy out of him not enjoying the performance. You're like, baby, yeah, suck it. why does he say this baby? The viewer has never said this baby. Baby, let's say baby. So let, let's get into it. They leave thinking that they've uh, succeeded and go like, let's rush to the uh, to the diner across the street. They'll stone us to death or the <laughs> bar across the street. And then we open up with Renee Taylor doing uh, uh, Ava Braun from the Bronx. Erlichmir, Erlichmirnich, Erlichmir, Erlichmirnich, Erlichmirnich. Hey, baby, I leave you. I leave you. Now leave me alone. Now leave me alone. <laughs> we talked about Dick Sean being kind of a left turn. I I don't know how. You have this without that setup earlier because his Hitler performance is—you can't not laugh at it, to my mind. And again, yeah, understanding so David, but it, it is so fucking out of the box. <laughs> like I love uh, when he goes like, "No, so cool it while I work out my campaign." He goes to the piano, gonna crush Poland, <laughs> and I'm gonna take over France. <laughs> I'm gonna cross the sea. <laughs> then I'm gonna kick them cats in the yeah, pants. <laughs> so people are laughing, and there, there's that oh. important line going, "Harry, he's funny." <laughs> like this ADR. Get <laughs> <laughs> this B Benedict sounding lady. Uh, we go to the bar, and they're reveling in their success. They join in their success with a fellow drunk across the bar, Bill Hickey. Um, Bill Hickey. Uh, would end up being the voice of uh, the doctor that keeps Sally in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> and... Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> William that. Hickey. Also, Uncle Lewis in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> well, there you go. He's the same guy. Very big Christmas career for, for Bill Hickey. Um, he would only uh, experience the positivity up until 1997 when he patched the way at the age of 69. Um, so, but we get him, uh, they, they have a round of drinks. Meanwhile, we get more of Dick Sean playing Hitler. Franz Liebkind is upset, uh, cause he, why does the fewer say this baby audience member goes, will you shut up? And Franz Liebkind says one of my favorite Franz Liebkind rhymes. You'll shut up. You are the audience. I am the author. I outrank you. <laughs> and then he tries to get it shut down. And he goes to the stagehand, and the stagehand goes, what are you doing? And he goes, you will please be unconscious. <laughs> Hits him, gets out in front, adds to the farce, and tries to tell them you are the victims of a hoax. The Fuhrer was sweet. The Fuhrer was kind. <laughs> All often he would say to me, Franz, and he hits hit over the head, ow. 
<laughs> oh wait, no, he gets hit first. He keeps going, and then he goes, "Ow!" The delayed reaction. Um, so funny. So uh, Max and Leo and the drunk get into a rendition of "By the Light of the Silvery Moon." You leave. <laughs> Max leaves and then comes out and sees the crowd gathering for the intermission to have a quick drink. And they are shocked to hear that people are. This will run for years. This will run for years. That don't don't get excited. They could, there's a lot of plays on this block. They can't necessarily be talking about springtime for Hitler. Hey, would you ever believe you would ever love a play in your life called Springtime for Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> um, which Curb Your Enthusiasm ended up doing a great run on season four uh, with. Larry David getting the role of Max Bialystok, and they thought it would be such a terrible performance that Mel and Ann would be able to close the show and retire from the producers. <laughs> and then they find out it's such a huge success, and Mel and Ann are just left sodden and sullen. <laughs> um, and uh, so we go back to the office. They're reveling in their victory, which is their defeat. Ula uh, go. Ula sees them at the door and goes, "We make love," and she unveils her in a, her in lingerie. We don't play. Uh, we we don't make love. Go to work. She goes back to dancing. Max is distraught. Congratulations, congratulations. Roger Debris comes in. Congratulations. Have you seen it? It's a smash. It's a hit. It's the biggest one on Broadway. And then, unfortunately, Max says the line, you lousy fruit, you ruined me. And that doesn't hold up at all. <laughs> um, no. Um, no. So let's talk about the farce element, Andrew, because this is where the farce comes in. This is where the farce comes So, And I will say, Mel Brooks always does this. I think this is the weakest element of it. But it becomes very keystone cops. Mm. And... You know, all of a sudden you've got Liebkin coming in with his Luger trying to like shoot them, and you've got Ula like trying to toss them under the table. Then you get like the authorities busting in as well, even though like we've not seen anything about the authorities being tipped off yeah. to um to uh the, the, the fraud. So it this scene just feels like a shit, I don't know how to end this. Mm. So well, I'm gonna end it this way. It's they go funny. to try to blow up the theater too. See, I think that the blowing oh, up I of the forgot th- about you're, you're, that. You're thinking I, about you're thinking about the play. Yeah, the right? play. Yes, the, the, I am the, thinking about the play. Thank you. Yeah, but yeah. but but the but the play but the play runs in correspondence with that scene up into the reason that the cops come up is because they're hearing a disturbance, and that's when in the musical Roger Debris goes, "This crazy crowd is crackers." <laughs> like yes. he does the alliteration scene, but um. I feel like the farce in this, because it starts with Roger Debris re- leaving after that, you know, it, it, the way he escapes with murder, murder, and then yeah. rape. It doesn't, it's it's a joke that's very iffy, but it but it compels the madness because then we still see that Ula is dancing outside. And then Max, or Leo just realizes the jig is up. He's going to leave. And Max tries to calm him down in those, give me those bucks! <laughs> and then they wrestle for them. And uh, Leo just goes, fat! Fat! Give me those fat books! Fat, fatty, fat! And that's when, as they're wrestling everybody, wrestling each other on the ground, uh, Franz Liebkin comes in and goes, you have broken to Siegfried Oath! You must die! And you hear a loud gunshot. And uh, they calm Franz Liebkin down and get the gun away from... Or they... they they uh they try to defeat him 
And there's this shot of Franz Liebkin. It's this high-angle shot on Franz Liebkin in the foreground and Max and Leo in the background. And he goes, Franz Liebkin will show you how to die like a man. I think that this moment with Franz, where he goes, soon I will be with my beloved Fuhrer and Goebbels and Goering, that, to me, is the most ultimate fuck you to the Nazi ideology. The yeah. idea that these idiots are willing to die for this idea, that, I think, is somehow, in a lot of ways, even more powerful than Springtime for Hitler itself because of the way the joke is constructed and the way it pertains to the character and what he's doing to them. Like, it's strong writing. It's very strong writing. And then the gun obviously doesn't go off. And he goes, mm-hmm. oh, boy, when things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then he does one of my favorite Mel Brooks jokes, which is there, there. Where, where? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, Max comes up with a brilliantly criminal idea. Take the take this money, buy bullets, shoot the actors. <laughs> And it get, I get a, I have a good chuckle at the joke about like you can't just shoot the actors; they're human beings. Really? Have you ever eaten with one? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how well that joke holds up today from an actor standpoint, but it's a joke I hear so often about actors being food hungry that I'm like, that's a funny joke for its time. They starve for years. Yes, exactly. The starving actor, the starving artist, if you will. Um, and, uh, they, they have very limited options. What can they do? Blow up the theater? Now, I think blowing up the theater is the weak part of the movie. As, As I say, it just, it, it descends into this weird farce. Yeah. Everything up until this movie has felt very angry, very pointed, very... Every joke is explaining a viewpoint and is giving the middle finger. And then it turns into this, well, better wrap up the plot. And all of that anger goes away and it just becomes a cartoon. And he trims it back even further because originally the quick fuse doesn't explode the theater. It's um, they decide to use... um, the plunger. The plunger, thing. yeah. Yeah. And Bill Hickey, the drunk, comes out from the bar, sees it, and thinks it's a shoe shine stand. <laughs> he goes, All right, boys, shine them up. And then it goes down, and then the theater explodes. Yeah. Um, but it do- we do get in here Leo apologizing to Max for calling him fatty, fat, fat. And yeah. they hug, and they-, they do love each other. They love each other as, as friends. Like they've-, they've bonded so much that yeah. they can't help but do it. But it's too late. The theater blows up. We see the shot of the little old ladies crying, and then it pulls back to them in court. You think it's a funeral. It's actually a court. Um, and Franz Liebkin is covered head to toe in uh, bandages, uh, singing, I believe it's the American anthem, like the national anthem. <laughs> um, and uh, the jury comes back, and they go, yeah, we find the defendants incredibly guilty, which... <laughs> I wish today we would hear somebody say that in an actual courtroom. We find the defendant incredibly guilty. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Leo asked to say something, not on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his partner, Max Bialystok. And we get this monologue that Gene helped co-write. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, no. Um, uh, Gene, uh, Gene wrote something out thinking like he should say something because he's been through 
heaven and hell with this man. And Mel gave him some notes and it seems like Mel and Jean kind of both wrote it together to a degree. And we get this beautiful soliloquy on friendship. Yeah. Do the defendants have anything to say in their behalf before the court pronounces sentence? I would like to say something, Your Honor. Not on my behalf, but in reference to my partner, Mr. Bialystok. Proceed. Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Max Bialystok is the most selfish man I ever met in my life. Don't help me. Not only is he a liar and a cheat and a scoundrel and a crook who has taken money from little old ladies, but he's also talked people into doing things, especially me, that they would never in a thousand years have dreamed of doing. But your honor, as I understand it, the law was created to protect people from being wronged. Your Honor, whom has Max Bialystok wronged? I mean, whom has he really hurt? Not me. Not me. I was... This man... <sighs> no one ever called me Leo before. I mean, I know it's not a big legal point, but even in kindergarten, they used to call me Bloom. I never sang a song before. I mean, with someone else. I never sang a song with someone else before. This man, this man, this is a wonderful man. He made me what I am today. He did. And what of the dear ladies? What would their lives have been without Max Bialystok? Max Bialystok, who made them feel young and attractive and wanted again. That's all I have to say. Who was Max Bialystok wronged? Um, I, I get a little welled up when I hear the line, no one ever called me Leo before. I mean, it's not a big legal point, but even when I was in school, all the kids used to go me bloom. And I, there's also a funny line of, he made me what I am. He really did. <laughs> <laughs> a criminal in court. <laughs> um, I, again, it goes to... Does we we mentioned it in episode one, but like Mel Brooks, no matter how dark and angry, there's always a lightness in his films. That's how he gets away with it. He refers to it as love of uh, the fight between love and money. Yeah, love and, and greed. so like you've got these two characters who they don't really learn their lesson because in the next scene <laughs> they're in prison, putting on prisoners of love. And uh, selling like two hundred percent shares to the guards and the prisoners. So hey, the warden wants in on it. But, and the warden you, wants in on it. But 
but they don't even like learn their lesson that they shouldn't be doing. There's no redemption for them. No, their their growth is that they just realize they love one another. Yeah, but there is something to Max Bialystok because he barely touches the production of the play Springtime for Hitler. But as he's gone along, he's rediscovered how much he loves putting on a show. Yeah. And when you see him leading those convicts in song with Sing It Out, Man, We Open in Leavenworth on Saturday night, <laughs> he's kind of learned how to love what he did again. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, you're right. It's, they don't learn their lesson. Like they're still overselling the show. Yeah. Um, and we get this wonderful pullback crane of prisoners of love, love. blue skies blue above. above can't keep our hearts in jail and it extends into the end credits where we get a, a curtain call for the actors and zero is just credited as zero mm-hmm. uh, which is nice and uh, we get a repeat of the fountain and that's the end uh, a mel brooks production and uh now the film is finished <laughs> Uh, Joseph E. Levine is hesitant to release it. <laughs> Why? Bla- Why? What? What is controversial about this movie? <laughs> Did he want it to be longer? Did he want like a certain segment to be longer? Yeah, yeah no, no. I, I mean, I, clearly it was there was not enough swastikas in it. No, um, I was going to say, was it was it not funny enough or too funny? I mean, Joe, Joe, I know that you think this movie is so damn <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Um, and no, they, they, they saw it. It was in bad taste, but Glazier had to convince them to push it. They had a premiere in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on the 22nd of November, 1967. Um, and the studio considered shelving it at that point. Um, but eventually it was released in a theater in New York, a nice art theater in New York. Um, and before it played, Fate would step in. Now, originally, there was there was a a revelation in the behind the scenes documentary that Peter Sellers was a consideration in uh, Mel Brooks's mind to play the lo- role of Leo Bloom, and apparently, Peter Sellers said he loved it, and then he never heard back from Peter. Which it makes this a crazy this... thing because they they said they said James Mason, <laughs> Peter Sellers is going to come and and play opposite you. And I thought we had great, great chemistry, but then, but then we never got a callback. No, bastards. It, I was really looking forward to playing opposite <laughs> that Pink Panther, whatever his name was. Yes, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good time. Good Inspector time. Close-Up? No, that's not it. <laughs> Inspector Clum again? No, no, uh, no. Yes, I mean, it's probably a French name. <laughs> I mean, could, could you imagine us in this film together? Inspector James Mason as the star role, and he'd be like, "Hello, I'm Peter Sellers. I'm not very good at impressions." <laughs> James Mason, my blanket, my blue voice. blanket. Give me back my blue blanket. Rod <laughs> Leapkin is playing blue now. No, I was trying to Give do Peter. <laughs> I was doing Paul Mazursky's imitation of Peter Sellers. Uh, okay, um, fair enough. I mean, okay, so fair enough. Peter Sellers does play into us. He was filming a movie called I Love You, Alice B. Toteless in New York, and he was gathering people once a week for a film club that was paired with a meal. And uh, Paul Mazursky, uh, the noted, one of the noted writer-directors of the New Wave era, uh, had suggested a fil- uh, Fellini's Vitelloni, uh, but nobody got a print of it. <laughs> 
And Peter Sellers went, where's the Vigiloni? <laughs> I want to see the Vigiloni. <laughs> and uh, the guy in the booth goes like, I don't have that, but I got this scent called the Pardosas. I don't think I'm supposed to show it, but I don't think anybody's going to know. And Peter Sellers goes like, play it, play it now. And Peter Sellers watches it. And he loves it. He loves it so fucking much that he calls Glazer. And he goes like, or either calls Glazer or Levine and just goes like, I've seen this movie. I'm going to put out an ad in Variety (laughs) to tell the people how much I love this movie in support of the film and its wider release. Um, And uh, additionally, a review from Look Magazine, uh, uh, from Gene Shalit, of all people, uh, a, a gentleman who many may not know today, but he was a film critic most known for his big fucking mustache um, and uh, his use of puns and alliteration in his reviews. And he said the line at the front, which was, uh, nobody will be seated during the last 88 minutes. They'll all be on the floor laughing. Um, the fil- film finds an audience. And... It even secures a nomination for Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars that year. Didn't it win for Best Original? It did, yeah. Yeah, because that, that was that was the first letter of Mel Brooks's EGOT. Yes, and this is, this is crazy because the lineup he had consisted of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wow. The Battle of Algiers. Like that's a, that's a stacked. That's that's incredible. Well, yeah. The, the the first twenty minutes of dialogue for two thousand and one suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for both just smiling and not laughing audibly at that hilarious joke. Yes. <laughs> I like the oh, lines I, I in it. History of the World Part One more, where he goes, uh, "And the ape stood and became man," and then you hear masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those things where I feel like the Oscars tend to reward a new up and coming writer, and Mel did qualify as that. Yeah. Um. And uh. And you know, like it's weird, like because the producer title changed from it became the producers from Springtime for Hitler. Imagine if Springtime for Hitler stayed the title. Do you think it would have even been remotely considered? <laughs> I don't know. I mean. Because you're, you're, you're getting into, like, um, that new brave era of cinema. The 70s was such an amazing time for American cinema. And, like, the Academy and all that loved edginess and uh, darkness and saying things you weren't supposed to say. So I don't know if it would have gotten an audience, but I think the Academy would have still at least nominated it. Yeah, I, I'd imagine so. The script is strong enough that it would still have the uh, have that victory in there and i you know i'm always surprised what the academy will nominate and what will win like get out i didn't think in in a million years that get out would get an oscar for screenplay let alone the nominations that it did yeah I, i think that that's a testament to for all that the academy has done stupidly Because we know what's happened recently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're not going to talk about it because I'm not going to add fuel to a stupid fire. Um, The Academy will honor things you wouldn't expect. Quentin Tarantino winning for Pulp Fiction. Out of the stacked lineup there, that's still a major victory. Mm -hmm. For a film that 
we we talk about it now as like, well, that should have won Best Picture. It's like, no, it probably would never have won Best Picture. <laughs> like, it's too hard to sell for people. And I think that, I, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like, the only other way it could have had very little impact is if this film had never gotten a release. Like, and it was just like, you, you wouldn't like, you wouldn't get the... Like it would have been just tossed away, but that that exposure, that statement from Peter well, Peter Sellers, that does a lot to boost the film's notoriety, and that looks good on the campaign trail. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So like, it well, Peter Sellers was such a big name back then. Yeah, he could he could make you listen. Yeah, which I think is the big takeaway from that is that he could make you listen to him, and. Yeah, I don't know. Like it, it's it's just it seems like a miracle. To be honest, it seems like a miracle. And it also in a sense puts Mel in a box. Yeah. And in some ways that is seen as kind of like a big cross to bear. Mhm. For Mel. And we'll, we'll talk about it more as we go along in this series, but I do think that that's like something to keep in mind is that this is one of the funniest movies ever made. There's no way you're ever going to top it. Now, Oh yeah, I was going to say because that does show up in his second film. Yes, like the, re- the reaction to his second film is exactly what you're saying. Um, because and this is why he had to go and create Brooks films so he could release the Elephant Man and and the Fly and all these other wonderful films. Because you see the name Mel Brooks, you're not going to that movie for drama or pathos or you know those kind of things. You're going to laugh, right? And it it made such an impression on Sellers. He he said this. I, I, I need to read the quote because it's it's too good. Last night I saw the ultimate film, The Producers, or as it was originally titled Springtime for Hitler. Brilliantly written and directed by Mel Brooks, it is the essence of all great comedy combined into a single motion picture. Without any doubt, Mel Brooks displays true genius in in weaving together tragedy comedy, comedy tragedy, pity, fear, hysteria, schizophrenia, inspired madness, and a large S of lunacy with sheer magic. The casting was perfect. Those of us who have seen this film and understand it have experienced a phenomenon which occurs only once in a lifespan. And I agree. It just only happens once in a lifetime. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the praise that gets an audience to go and gets that exposure to an academy. And yeah. let's face it, they tried for other Oscars apart from this. I told you guys in our talks that I would find some uh, some uh, uh, awards uh, propaganda or some stuff from Variety. And I found an interesting one here that I'm going to share with you all right now. And I'll post a picture of it on our Instagram page. This is an FYC ad oh, for Springtime for Hitler. It's respectfully submitted for your consideration. <laughs> Attention Academy Music Branch members. <laughs> so, for those They're... who don't go on our Instagram, like the picture is literally a shot from the stage production of all these huts and tuts and Nazis with their arms in the air and big shit-eating grins in front <laughs> of a big... picture of Hitler. <laughs> with a big yeah. portrait of Hitler. There. There's a reason why this wasn't taken seriously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... The film does set Mel Brooks up as a filmmaker. 
Now we've talked about the producers for a long while now, gentlemen. Yeah, and um, I, I want to know our final thoughts here before we wrap this whole sucker up. I don't think... Now, I will say I've not seen Jojo Rabbit, uh, which to my understanding is the closest comparison of a comedy movie you can get to this. Um, and as I say, I've not seen it, but I think there's a lot more drama in that movie than there is um, than certainly this film. I mean, I know about the end shot, which is just heartbreaking, um, which is why I don't think you will ever see a film like this again. Because if you think about like some of the biggest comedies of the past, you know, certainly of this, um, uh, of the 2010s, it's movies like The Hangover, which have absolutely nothing to say. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think you're ever going to see this film ever again. What's funny is that, like I mentioned that the film found an audience, but it didn't like do a commercial. It didn't make a commercial like it made a buck. Yeah. No, and, not, that, and that's fair. And what's funny is that when they released the producer's remake, it also bombed at the box office. Oh, it did, didn't it? Yeah, yeah it I think that it, it's it's interesting to consider. But and Jojo Rabbit didn't like have this like huge box office haul. No. It was just very very praised. I yeah. think you can make, I think you can make a film like it today, but it just comes under a different cloak. It comes under yeah. the cloak of a Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. Um, and I, but I, I agree. Like it does. It is a once. It it, it happens at the right time. Yeah. Like it was. It was at the right moment. Lightning struck when it was supposed to. Um, I really, I really like that. I'm glad that you brought up Jojo Rabbit because I think that that is a really interesting modern day film to compare, to compare the audacity of this film to. Yeah, you have a just the portrayal of Hitler uh, in in Jojo Rabbit as like a kid friendly, kind of openly gay guy. Like, just it's interesting. Like, it's an interesting. Hello, risky. Way. Yeah, yeah, it's a little risque and like. I don't know. I I really I genuinely love Jojo Rabbit. I thought it was a really well done film, and I think oh, yeah. for a yeah. lot of the same reasons why I loved this film. Like it just it it attacks the the totalitarian government. It attacks the Nazi mindset. Um, to Zach's point about like I'm going to join Goebbels, uh, my fear, and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. Yeah, and, but, yeah, and it's like. Yeah, because all those idiots are dead now because they like their mindset is not going to win ever, yeah. um, and it's it's ridiculous that anybody would want to join them. Um, and I just I don't know. I just really love this film. I love the film because it is Mel Brooks in the most Mel Brooks way of creating cringe and comedy in the exact same breath. And yeah, yeah. I just I, I don't know. It's a great film. I, I think this is really the only one of his films that he's not expecting to be a big hit. If yeah. that makes sense. Like you watch all his other films, like they're designed like for easy box office. Um, and again, we'll talk about 12 chairs. Um, but this was like, this is the one Mel Brooks film where anarchy reigns. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's raw. It's, it's, it's unfiltered. It, yeah. yeah. It's like unfiltered. Yeah. And I think that's why it's my favorite of his films is because it is Mel unfiltered. And I do like when a fil filmmaker goes unfiltered yeah. because you're, you're watching their personality on the screen and for Mel and this film in particular, 
it, it's a it's a lovely dark story about friendship. It's also a it's a story it's a story designed to attack a past trauma with the power of laughter. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because unfortunately that ideology hasn't gone away. But I feel like a film like The Producers is just as important now as when it as it was when it was made and when it was redone on Broadway. It's still a reminder of the clownishness of that ideology in the form of this strange love story between these two men who find an embrace by the end after this madcap scheme has gone awry. It's, I think it just hits all the beats that I'm looking for out of Mel's filmography in a way that I can't ignore it as like, this is, this is the tops. This will never be beat. Um, It's like, sometimes my favorite films are films that I wish I could make. This is a film I wish I could make. (laughs) I wish I could make a film like this. This this brazen, this audacious, and but with that kind of heart attached to it. Um, so like it's it was a chat. It, it was a pleasure as always, gentlemen, to talk with you about our beloved Mel, and talking about arguably one of his masterpieces, which there are a bunch, but this might be one of the most important because it stayed with him through most of his career. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, before we wrap up, let's tease the next episode. We're actually going to be going back in time. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We're going to talk about the entire series of Get Smart. Everything's going to be nothing but Maxwell Smart, Don Adams, and... Hold on, hold on. I'm getting a a notice off the wire. Huh. Guys, did you hear... Did you see this notification on your news app? I'm pulling it up now. Yeah, do it. About four days ago, a plane landed at Idlewild Airport. The plane came from the Middle East, bearing a man who claims to be 2,000 years old. And he spent the last six days at the Mayo Clinic. We should go interview him. Yes, we, we should. should go we interview, should definitely him. Go interview him. You actually, you know what? We shouldn't do it. We should get our friend Carl Reiner to do it. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, Carl out there. that's right, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be talking about the 2,000-year-old man. We're going to be talking about what kept Mel afloat comedy-wise on stage, uh, and as well as one of the most long-lasting milestones of his career. And we'll also be talking about his friendship with the one, the only, Carl Reiner. The wonderful Carl Reiner. The amazing Carl Reiner. The the god Carl Reiner. Yes. He made a movie called Oh God, so therefore he's God. It's not George (laughs) Burns, it's Carl. Um, He also made a movie called The Jerk, so I don't know what that says. (laughs) He also made Somebody's a film called... shooting at the cans. He, he made. <laughs> we don't have a defective can. We have a defective person out there. <laughs> <laughs> Son, this is shit. This is Shinola. <laughs> shit, Shinola. Shinola. Got it. <laughs> um, but until next time, folks. Keep firing, assholes. Prisoners of love. Blue skies above can't keep our hearts in jail. Prisoners of love, our turbo doves soon come and round with nail. Oh, you can Thanks again, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to I'm Surrounded by Assholes. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Surrounded Brooks Pod and on Twitter at SBA Brooks. Be sure to tune in next time, and until then. 
keep a smile on your face, and eat a nectarine. They're the best fruit ever made. Prisoners of love Blue skies above Us, we're still prisoners We're still prisoners We're still prisoners of Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Goodbye everyone. Goodbye from me, James Smith. <laughs> James, James, get out of this fucking studio. <laughs> okay, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Martin Landau, let's go. <laughs> Martin Landau, let's blow this popsicle stand. She's been fooling you this entire time. Where's <laughs> <laughs> the damn microphone? There were blanks in that gun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good night, folks. Cheers. <laughs>